and good day. Hello everyone, thank you very much again for stopping by for today's Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream. Uh, we will get started in a few minutes, we'll give people a chance to show up. I usually like to give a good five or six minutes before we jump into the story. Um, begin by saying I hope you all have had a good couple of weeks. It's been two weeks since the last one here. And uh, let's see. Oh, one second. Sorry, I just need to. Um, it's been two weeks since our last stream, so uh, we will do a short recap to show where we left off. Um, today's stream, today's story, uh, should run us right into, I guess what you'd say, the finality, finale of this chapter. Um, these characters in this section. Um, not saying they're all going anywhere, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that for this part of the story, uh, next Merged Worlds should be very likely the end and possibly the beginning of the next chapter. Um, if I remember everything going over my head and I've been kind of rehearsing it, I think that it'll only take about half of next stream to get to the point where... Um, We'll finish up, and then I'll jump right in. Because it, it, it continues, don't get me wrong. It's a continuation of the story, but it's, I guess you'd say, big climactic season finale kind of thing is what I'm shooting for. And hello, James. Welcome up to the stream, sir. Um, so we're going to touch on that. Um, first, though, before we jump into the recap, <clears throat> I'm going to address one question that I got on the OnlyDraven.com website. And hello, Neon, to you as well. Good day. Um, I did get a question about Merge World submitted for the first time through email, and that was kind of cool. So I thought I would address that right off the bat. Um, an anonymous person asked, um, for the story itself, how did I come up with it? Where, where did What was it based on? Um, <laughs> James says, finally something good on TV. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I'll try not to be as hideous as normal. Um, but I was like, where did I come up with the story? Um... Like a lot of D &D DMs or Dungeon Masters, people who, who run stories for people, uh, in the very early years, um, a lot of my basic ideas were based off of other books or movies and things that I saw. I found a magic weapon in a, in a novel I liked, so I made my own version of it. Or I was watching TV and saw a cool monster, thought it'd be cool to fight that. Um, so very early on, <clears throat> a lot of that was how I kind of get my ideas. In fact, I had... Some of you may may have noticed, I've not gone into a lot of detail about what these magical artifacts do. Uh, you know, most of them are weapons of some kind, and there's different things they've got uh, they've got a hold of, but um, I haven't used them for really anything much. And that was kind of that way it was in the story. When I first introduced them as a concept and wrapped my whole world around them, <clears throat> I didn't have quite the idea of the long game I was going for. Um, and so they were based on mix of different weapons and things I'd read about or seen on shows and things that I thought would be cool. And then very over, very quickly, I realized that I was enjoying telling the story and it became more about the characters. And I wanted to move away from using other people's stuff. So for many years, I actually gave up reading. Um, let me rephrase, reading anything that would be like fantasy-based. So I read some sci-fi stuff and some horror and things like that. But I stayed away from a lot of the, the fantasy-based stuff for fear that I would accidentally use someone else's idea or without even realizing it. Um, so I, I really avoided that. Until I got older, I learned to be able to separate the two. Um, but 
for the majority of my story, I usually, honestly, end up writing it in the car. Uh, most of my ideas come while I'm listening to music. Um, it is very common for specific characters or sometimes races um, to have a specific type of music in my mind. So when I'm when I'm trying to think of the story for them, I'll listen to a specific type of music or more importantly, a special band or singer, something that I feel that their music really uh, lends to the theme of that character. Um, same with villains. I have certain villains that have their own theme music as well. Um, so I put together playlists of music that I find inspiring that... Um, that helps me come up with ideas. And a lot of times it's just me going through the story in my head. How would I like it to play out? Um, and after the first few years of writing, I, I started to learn how to seed stories, to put little things in the story that were insignificant or seemed kind of cool at the time, but were really going to be way more important down the road because I always started to see a long game. Uh, I started putting together, for me, a, a vast, sprawling story arc that... For everyone else, it seemed this was an adventure, and then the next adventure continued on from that, and continued on from that, but it was a cohesive storyline working towards an end goal that I've had in my mind for a very long time. So uh, music has helped me considerably with that. If I was to pick a band that I have come up with the most ideas to, um, it would be Breaking Benjamin. Um, Breaking Benjamin, uh, I like a lot. They have a lot of diverse music style, but there are certain songs that, while listening to, have directly help me create specific scenes or specific moods of characters, help me create some characters and NPCs. Um, some of those we'll see here, hopefully very soon. Um, but, uh, but music is, is a big driving force of where I get my ideas. It's very, very uh, inspiring, if you will, as I listen to it. <clears throat> and then um, for Minotaurs, I listen to a lot of uh, Disturbed. Um, there are several songs, uh, there's a couple songs in general that I, I like a lot that really make me think of um, Darsh in our party and then other Minotaurs that will be introduced. Uh, but um, that's a band that really leads me to them. Um, so things like that. So I wanted to address that question because it was really nice of somebody to submit a question. Um, if you have a question, you're welcome to put it in the uh, comment section of this or put it in chat while we're doing it. I'll answer it in real time. Uh, but if you're watching this later, you can go to OnlyDraven.com on the very first page all the way at the bottom is the place you can submit feedback uh, or e through email and you can do that with uh, randomly or anonymously if you'd rather not give out your name uh, let's see James says I agree I've seen them live a few time, times Disturbed as well yeah Disturbed is a uh, Disturbed is really good Breaking Benjamin is a band I've not, sadly not got a chance to see yet another one I use is uh, Seether Seether's probably one of my top three favorite bands of all time I've seen them three times now uh, but they're a band that I use for specific characters I can't talk about right yet because they don't exist in the story. So we'll get to them eventually. Uh, but when we get to these characters specifically, the ones that are kind of inspired, the specific things that are inspired by songs, um, I'll, I'll come back to this and I'll, I'll, I'll say, hey, I came up with this idea while listening to this song or listening to this band. Um, I wrote this idea while listening to this music. So I still have a couple Dungeons & Dragons playlists that I put together over the years and maybe if people are interested in that, I could uh, put something like that together for people could go to the site and link to a Spotify playlist or something of D&D songs that I found inspiring for the story. If that's something you'd be interested in, uh, feel free to throw it in chat again or, or in the comments. Um, 
You can also, of course, come to our Discord channel. Only Draven Gaming has a Discord channel that's open to everyone now. Um, if you go to OnlyDraven.com, right on the first page, there's a button near the top that says click here for the Discord. Click on that, join on in. We chat about a lot of stuff. There's a thread specifically for Dungeons & Dragons and Merge World. There's threads for Minecraft and all sorts of things, and I'm always adding new ones. So uh, if you have any questions, feel free to jump in there. I'll do my best to answer them in real time, as long as I'm not giving away any of the story. Uh, but wanted to touch on that because I thought it was a cool question. Uh, but we are now I'll kind of touch base on where we left off. Uh, so last episode we finished up with the, or well, we were, we were working with the uh, West group, the group that went West. Um, and that consisted of Dandy, Shadow, uh, Zarin, and um, Artemis. And um, their new friend, Michael, who was a knight of an order that he hasn't really gone into a lot of detail yet. But he says that he belonged to a group of knights. His father's uncle was a knight, so on and so forth. Uh, and he's joined up with them since they saved his life in the mines earlier on and uh, feels he has a life debt to protect them in the same way. Uh, became very valuable, a very good fighter in melee, even though he's very, very small in stature. He's a little guy, but he's pretty buff. Um, so... They were continually traveling after that point. They came across uh, a point where they came across a deserty kind of area, and there was a giant pyramid, which none of them had seen before. Uh, it was near there that they met up with an elven wizardess or mage named Elmira, uh, who said that her companions had been killed by the very likely the same drow that um, our heroes in the West group were chasing, and that she was trying to continue their mission to get uh, these magical things that she needed out of the pyramid but couldn't figure out how to get in. She joined up with the party. They managed to get inside. Uh, fought their way through some... Uh, it was a very puzzle-heavy uh, adventure or dungeon, if you will. Uh, when we played that, it was, it was very much more puzzle than combat um, because, again, a lot of the Zarin and Dandy and Artemis are not big combat. This, this group, I... I I did a lot more of the puzzle and, and things like that, story-based, than I did combat. But they have some, because I want to keep Shadow entertained. But they got uh, to a big room at the end, where it turns out Elmira was working with or for the drow, and was there to get the same Artemis as them. And she turned on them, using some magic spells, tried to take out the party, but they successfully defeated her. And at the end of that, uh, were able to gather up another one of the magical artifacts that they were looking for. And they made their way back out. And that is kind of where we left off on the last episode. Now, um, today we're going to start with this group again. Although I don't think we'll be with them the whole night. We're very likely going to step back over to group th uh, east. Um, just depends on how well things flow, I guess. One moment while well, I have a grape. All right. This time. I just realized I should put the uh, phone on mute so I don't blow anybody's ears up. Um, one last thing I'll me uh, mention real quick before I jump in. Uh, if you're enjoying the stream, you enjoy the video, please be sure to click like. Uh, if you're new here, be sure to hit subscribe. That way you can see all my videos, streams, and stuff. Um, you can also go, like I said, the website I've mentioned a couple times, onlydraven.com. You'll see a lot of stuff on there. Uh, references to this, photos that represent the characters and things like that. I will eventually get some specific art done for each of the characters. Um, but that's a little bit down the road, budget-wise. Um, but we also have a Merge Worlds uh, subreddit now. So if you go to our Merge Worlds on Reddit, there is a subreddit that is specifically devoted to this story. Um, it's still relatively new, but hopefully uh, 
hang out there with us. If you have questions and such, place we can add art as I find it, and uh, things like that. So, wanted to mention that. But we're about 12 minutes in now, so I think it's safe to go ahead and get some storytelling going. Um, again, where we left off, the group had just left the desert. They did not return to the camp where they met Elmira, where they'd spent the night before, for fear that maybe there was traps there, maybe she'd left something else, or the whole story about companions. Were there other companions or not? Um, they decided it'd be best to try to push on and get away from that while following the little glow of their necklace, letting them know which way they need to go. And now it was heading um, almost straight west, but a little bit south. So they started heading in that direction, trying to put as much distance between them and the pyramid before they camped out for the night. Uh, luckily, no one took any serious damage, no serious harm. Uh, Artemis said it would keep everybody relatively healed up, and they were able to move pretty quickly. Um, they traveled for a couple of days before they finally came across the small town. Um, they were in and out of it very quickly. Nothing of major note happened there. They picked up a few basic supplies, asked some questions, didn't learn anything. No, no one had noticed any drow or anything like that. None of them had known anything about Almira. She'd not come there either. Um, Artemis helped some of the town folks out with Healy stuff, because that's what Artemis always does. Um, but nothing major of nort note. The one big thing that they were able to do is in this situation, they were able to get some horses. And so... Um, Zarin was the only one in the group who did not know how to ride a horse professionally. So he rode on one on the back of uh, Dandy, because they were the two smallest people. So it didn't put as much weight on the horses, and they could hopefully keep up. Um, well, Secrecy and Sneaky is really Shadow and Dandy's forte. They knew the Drow had horses, and they had lost a lot of time with everything they'd been doing. Their hope was that maybe they were supposed to meet Elmira somewhere, the drow were, and maybe they could catch up with them or catch them there. Um, so they started proceeding on horse, horseback, and they traveled for several more days, uh, about three or four, um, without any major issues. If I remember correctly, at one point they had to fight a bear um, that had come into their camp at night, but it was a just a random encounter for the story. Keep it flowing for the players. But uh, they traveled on for three or four days, without any major note, putting some serious mileage into where they were going. Um, and they found that they were starting to go a little bit more south than um, west. I mean, they're, they're still going west, but now more southwest than they were, kept, kept going that direction. Um, and it was the night of the fourth night uh, when they have their first issue. That evening, as always, they take turns at watch, they eat a meal, chat, so on and so forth. Shadow always takes first watch. Um, and it had become quite the pattern that Dandy would take the last watch, um, both of them having relatively good improvision. Artemis's was just as good as almost as Shadow's, but um, she took more in the middle because they wanted her to have time to pray and rest and so on. Um, Michael usually was second to last, and then Zarin took his right after Shadow before uh, Artemis. So that was kind of their... Their order. Whenever their party marching order was almost always Dandy, Shadow, Zarin, Artemis, and followed up by Michael. So if they're traveling down tunnels or going through doors or hallways, you know, that was their party order um, for most of their actions and, and things they do. So if they're attacked from behind, they would be the opposite direction. So things that was important for that. Um, 
But that evening, they're resting. And it is Michael's turn, uh, of course. And then Dandy wakes up a little bit later. And she, you know, Michael comes to get her to you know, rest and such. And Michael had become pretty good friends with everybody at this point. Um, he uh, told a lot about them. They, he knew a lot about the group and so on and so forth. He became a very trusted member of the party. Um, and a lot of times, you know, when uh, Artemis would wake him up for his turn, you know, she would sit and chat with him for a little while, and then he'd wake up Dandy, he'd chat with her, so on and so forth. And uh, he and Shadow spent a lot of time... He, the only one he didn't really spend a lot of time talking to was... Um, was Zarin, just because, I mean, there, were, there was nothing against each other, but they just didn't have much in common. And Zarin very often kept to himself anyways, um, when they were just traveling, reading his books, and so on and so forth. Uh, Neon asks, who is playing Michael? Was he a GM PC? Yes, he was mine. Um, I will really quickly interject here. Um, Almira was originally played by someone else. Um, when she was introduced into the adventure... She was not, honestly, supposed to be the traitor working with the drow that she ended up being. But my friends who were in the group had a friend that they wanted to play. I was not a fan of this person and really didn't want them to, but all of my friends liked him, and they really asked me to give him a chance at playing. So I let him roll a character. He created Almira, and within the first ten minutes, realized he was one of the worst power gamers I have ever played with. Zero role-playing involved. All he was doing was min-maxing and trying to be the strongest as possible. And it literally sucked the energy out of the almost that entire adventure. She was actually with the party a little bit before in the story where they're at now. But he came one time and never came back again. Which is exactly what I said would happen. Why I didn't want him to come. Because I didn't trust that he would he'd dedicate time to it. So, because I really didn't like him or his character, Omira was then taken over by me and proceeded to be what we turned her into in the last episode of the story. Um, but other than the eight main characters, every other character that I ever talk about is run by me. Uh, so everybody else is an NPC of some kind. The villains, the heroes, the townspeople. Um, with the exception, of course, of anyone in the very first group, you know, Rafe, Firemoon, and Tabork, they were played by actual characters um, up until the point where the, the great merge happened. Um, and then everything after that, I ran those characters because I moved away from where those folks were. I didn't get to play with them anymore. So completely different group at that time. So they were NPCs from that point on. Uh, but yeah, I played pretty much everybody. Sorry for a very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, so yes, yeah, so they're resting. And in this particular evening, same situation happens. Michael spends a, time, spends a bit of time talking with... Um, Artemis, uh, Michael being a knight, um, while it's not a holy knight, uh, specifically, um, they have a little bit, uh, you know, they still are, are you know, they're a, a group of good knights, so worshipping the good gods and goddesses and helping them do their work is something that's important to the knighthood, so something he's always taken, Michael always took pleasure in, and talking and learning from Artemis more about that god, him being a warrior, the god of, goddess, or god of healing was he's very familiar with, but did not know all of the story. Um, and then coming from different worlds, even though they're the same gods, sometimes they're known by different names, depending on the world they're on. Um, and then sometimes, you know, they had different stories and lore and the way they acted with people on one world that the other people didn't have a history of. So learning the history of how that god worked on one world is very interesting, especially when you find two clerics of the same god, but from different worlds. 
um, especially if the rules are different for them. Then we have some collision, and that's something I work in very much so that I, I look forward to touching on later. Uh, Paul says, good day, liked and shared, Draven. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate you stopping by, and I appreciate you liking and sharing. Thank you very much. I'm doing my very best to try to get the words out on this story and podcast. Uh, it's definitely uh, harder to get it out there, because I know most of the people come to my YouTube channel, this is not the audience, or not for a lot of this. So I appreciate those of you who are hanging out and watching with me. Um, so they, uh, they're camping that night, and again, Michael spends some time talking with Artemis, as he does. Um, and he takes his watch, and then he wakes up Dandy. And this night, he decides to sit up and chat with Dandy. Now, not a lot of people in their right mind would choose to sit and talk to a Kender. Um, but Michael, okay, he, you know, he's always been nice to Dandy and everything. Uh, let me see. And so, um, again, and as is normally the case, Dandy does 99% of the talking. Um, except for in those situations when she asks him for, like, and he's telling a story, maybe of a battle or of a history or something of his world. Uh, Kender love a good tale. They love a good story. So Kender love bards. In fact, uh, something Kender bards, a little more common in merged worlds, so expect to see some of that. But uh, loves a good story and a good tale. Always asking tons of questions and a lot of times interrupting to ask those questions. But... Uh, she loves a good tale. And this night, um, he was doing just that. He was telling a story. She, she's like, you're not going to sleep? He's like, no, I'm, I'm, I, I slept pretty well up until my turn. I feel good. I'm, I'll, I'll catch a couple of few minutes before we leave, but I wanna, I'm telling the story and chat with you. So he's telling the story and such, and um, they're hanging out, and she's just having a blast. Although Dandy, always eyeing the prize, always very well aware of her situation and her surroundings. Um, same as Shadow. You know, it's, it's hard to catch Dandy surprised. Uh, she could be chatting a mile a minute, but she also heard that footprint 50 feet away, even though she may not give it away yet. You know, she's, she's very, very aware of her surroundings, as a good rogue should be. Um, but they're sitting chatting. Michael's telling a story of uh, one of his actual ancestors uh, several generations back and how he'd led a group of knights to uh, uh, defeat a dragon, you know, that was terrorizing a town and so on and so forth. And Dandy thought that was really cool because uh, Dandy had not really, she'd seen a couple dragons at a distance, but she'd never really seen one up close and was always interested in dragons. And that's a fascination she has to this day. Um, but they're chatting and such. And Michael starts asking her about her world and so on and so forth and, and asking questions as he normally does, but um, it gives her a chance to talk to him about her parents, her family, Originally, what was her goals on her original world? What was she looking to do before all this happened? And they get to chatting, and time really flies at that point, um, to the point where they start to hear everybody else waking up. And with a smile, they start gathering all their stuff up. Cause Michael, Michael never did get those last few hours of sleep that he was looking to get, but they had a good time, and it was fine. Um, but Michael was very, very interested in the things that she was saying. And I've mentioned in the past that he's always kind of had a look for like a concerned look where Dandy was. Always been friendly to her. They sit and they chat and so on. But he's always very interested in what she's doing in a situation. You know? Is she trying to get watching where she's in position everybody else during combat? You know? Where is she when they're traveling? When it's her, when it's her time to sneak off, he seems very, very protective of the group. Showing concern. Like, is she even going to come back? Because again, it's a kender. There's the chance that she just might disappear. She may find an interesting rainbow in the distance and decide to go find it. Dandy not being quite the typical Kender. Um, she's always returns, but, you know, these things happen. The group gathers up their stuff, and um, 
Shadow and Artemis share a little smile and they get in there putting together. And um, at this point, uh, players were asking, was there any love interest between the two of them being elves? The answer is no. At no time did Shadow or Artemis ever have any type of a romantic inkling. For those of you who are, uh, what's the term, shipping that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Um, so everybody gets up and they get going. This day was, of course, a day of awakenings. Um, as they are traveling, they only go partway through the day before up ahead in the distance, because Shadow's a bit ahead at this point. He's scouting ahead. He comes racing back to the party, announcing he's seen sight of the drow in the distance. The party's kind of blown away. They didn't believe they'd catch up with him, but sure enough, he said he saw them in the distance, just traveling at an easy speed across the valley. Now, this day was relatively rainy, like a light rain after they'd start traveling. It wasn't at night, but it started to, but it's very overcast. Okay? Um, and that's important because, again, drow, not a big fan of, especially the kind that live most of their life underground, not a big fan of light. Uh, they travel much easier in days like this because it's not as bright out. The party quickly goes racing off, decides to stick together because, you know, if you don't want to come upon a group of six drow, just a few of you, um, they know that's going to be a pretty hard fight, and that guy did not seem scared at them at all, which means he's probably going to hold his own pretty well. They get to the part where Shadow saw them in the distance, and as they crest that hill, thinking the drow would be further on, in fact, the drow were now closer to them, heading that direction. But the drow, at first sight of them, stop, and both groups, for just a moment, are kind of sitting there staring at each other from across this valley, and then very quickly the drow turn and just take off at full speed. Our heroes give chase, of course. Um, now, the drow are one per horse. Um, they're all, they seem relatively skilled. Um, as our group are not as good on horses, um, some of them better than others, um, but Zarin on the back of dandies is definitely an issue. Um, the best horseman of all of them is Michael. Uh, he spent a lot of time training on horses and such. So, um, of all of them, he's by far the, the best, but he, he doesn't surge ahead of everyone else, because again, catching up to the drow by himself is silly. Um, he does definitely blame the drow for part of his situation ending up in the mines as they were, the drow was le in league with the uh, evil cleric that had them all mining there, so he's not a big fan of them either. But they go racing on, and the drow do slowly start to get further and further ahead of them. Um, and they enter into some woods on the other side of the valley. Our heroes race as quickly as they can. It does take a little while, but they get into the trees. They have to slow down a bit because now they have to worry about an ambush. Shadow moves a little bit ahead. Um, but as they move, they, it doesn't take long to realize that the drow are making great speed through the trees. In fact, they, so much so that they seem to really know where they're going, which in itself is another concern. Are they getting close to where their base is or, or to where their leader is? This darkness that um, they serve. You know, do they want, are they going to turn a corner and come across an army of drow? This is a concern as well. So the party is doing their best to race after them. And as they do, they're slowed down a little bit. They know that they may be falling further behind, but at least now they're hot on the scent, if you will. And Artemis, using her necklace, is pointing right at the direction the drow are going. So they're, they're, they know he has at least one of the artifacts, and by far he is the closest one to them. So even though they may have to go a little bit, they know they've got a way of tracking him better than anything imaginable. Or at least if he gives the, the artifact to one of the others and they split up, they are going to know the direction to go. They come out of the woods and almost directly into a town. Um, a town that is in turmoil. It's a small village. Uh, it's 
really the a road runs through it and the trees and they're kind of in a circular cutout of the trees one road going right through the middle town doesn't have but maybe more than 15 or 20 buildings um, the road itself well worn but well maintained um, the party come up and immediately even though there's a light rain they immediately come up, come out of the woods to see several buildings on fire people running around trying to put the fire out and they can see bodies in the street now, as soon as they come out of the trees, people start freaking out until they recognize Artemis for what she is, a cleric of healing. And then they just literally almost mob her. And Michael and Shadow are doing the best to keep people away, but not trying to hurt innocent people either. Ask me quickly what happened. You can might as well expect. A group of drow came through minutes earlier and immediately started lighting us fire and just attacking everyone they could find. Slaying several people and injuring multiple more. Took off up the road. Now our group wanted, wants to immediately go after them, but hear people bleeding and, and hurting and such, and they know that this happened because they were chasing the drow. The drow did this to slow them down and succeeded. Artemis has to stop. She stops. She does what she can for the people that, that she can. Everybody else doing their best to try to help fight the fires, which fortunately the light rain helps a little bit, um, but they were able to help, you know, but it, it, it definitely hurts them. Uh, Neon is correct. Yes, diversion for the heroes. Knowing that there's a cleric of healing behind them, hurting innocent people, the best thing they could do. I mean, in their mind, to, to stop them. I'm not saying it's a good thing. But, um, several people had lost their lives. Several people injured. Um, Artemis was able to save pretty much everyone who wasn't already dead when they arrived. And it took total about 30 to 40 minutes before they were able to get the small fires out. Luckily, the rain had kept them from spreading greatly. Um... But as soon as they quickly can, hop on their horses and start heading after them again. Again, using their necklace. Again, they know they're behind them now, but they know that they can track them. But now they have a concern. What else are they going to do? Ambushes, hurting more people. Now they have concerns for not just the enemy ahead of them, what they're running into, but perhaps the damage ahead of them as well. Um, and it does not take long for those fears to be realized. As they are racing up the road, within 30 minutes, they come across several wagons, farm folk that were traveling one place or another, all killed. At least killed or injured. And that's the big kicker. There's always at least some dead, but no one, not, not all of them are always dead. There's always someone left alive. Artemis, again, having to stop, do what she can for the people that are there, save those that they can, do their best to get, and then carry on again. This is doing two things to the party, and the party realizes it's slowing them down. But on top of that, it's making Artemis use her healing spells. Artemis only can heal a certain amount of damage a day. She has so many spells before she's worn out. And this is a way of not only slowing the party down, but also using up probably one of their greatest resources that the drow very likely don't have, which is the ability to heal injuries, especially in combat. Rinse and repeat. They help the people as they can, and they start going on. They don't travel further before now they're off the road again. Beacon from the amulets, taking them off-road. And they travel for a good while, the rest of the day really, without any more sight of the drow. They know they're on their trail. They can see it. Shadow sees the broken branches. You can see the prints in the mud as they're going. But they travel as long as they can before they admit they're going to have to stop and rest for the night. The party is worn out. They've been pushing themselves as much as they can. Artemis 
doing everything she can to regain her spells, doing her prayers and such, but trying to get some sleep. They're going to try to sleep less than they normally do. They're going to double watches as well, so they're going to be taking longer watches, but have two people, so there's a better chance if somebody, if the drow do try to sneak in the night, because they clearly know the drow have the edge in the darkness. Drow's Infravision is better even than a standard elf like Shadow or Artemis, and that's where they work the best, so... They're aware that this could be a concern. So they do their best. Zarin, um, more so than normal, casting different spells and wards around the party, things he normally wouldn't do, to, again, hopefully mitigate that danger of, a, of a, an attack in the middle of the night. And they awaken the next day. Nothing has happened. They gather up their things, eat a quick meal, don't have time to cook anything, you know, Road rations, usually jerky, cheeses, breads, things that they've got. And then they travel on. This happens for another day or so. They never actually see the drow, but their fears are that they're getting further and further behind. The rain luckily stopped after the first day, and they didn't come across any more groups of people being in the woods. And they're traveling through woods than grasslands. You know, it's not always a giant forest, but they're traveling through different terrains. But it normally between plains, rolling hills and forests, things like that. There's not any extreme environmental biomes. They're not going through any deserts, any snow areas. They've had to cross a couple small you know, streams, but nothing major that they couldn't get across. Um, but they proceed forward. They do that for two more days. The third day, about midday as they're traveling... They're making good time. They try not to push themselves too hard because they don't want to wear out the horses, but they're, they're trying to stay going. They stop as little as possible. But at his position in the front, Shadow is the first person to smell smoke. And he lets everyone else know. Of course, they all catch on pretty quickly. The smell is pretty bad, and they start to move a little bit quicker for fear that it's happened again. And as they travel, it's not just a smell of smoke, but the stink of death. And they come out of the woods to find a small village. Now, when I say a small village, I don't necessarily mean that there were not a lot of houses. That's also partially the case. But the homes themselves, a bit smaller than the average human-sized settlement. The homes themselves, an odd-looking group of buildings multiple weird colors built out of different types of materials, odd shapes, um, almost more for decoration than for actual stability. Um, looks like homes were built and then just given up on, stopped going one direction. Not one house even close to looking like any of the others. And the bodies on the ground were all Kender. This was a Kender village. From what they can see, the, the drow just slaughtered the entire village. There's bodies everywhere. They race around as quickly as they can, trying to find anyone. They check the homes, which are burning. Um, there's dead animals. Not a lot of them. Kendra don't keep a lot of animals, but you know, a few, mostly pets. Um, but they find the, the bodies of what appear to be at least 16 to 17 Kendra. Kendra themselves... Very good fighters, sneaky. Um, the majority of the Kender they're coming across are older in age. They've, they're past the age where their wanderlust has, has ended and they've decided to settle down. Traveling the world is a young Kender's game. It's 
kind of the idea there. So a lot of the ones you see are more of the older type. It's rare to find a Kender community, even more rare to find an older Kender. So many of them die young just from their lack of fear and overwhelming curiosity. Um, but on occasion, when a group find together, living together and sharing their stories and uh, for the rest of their lives becomes a big thing. And so Kender villages do pop up occasionally. And this is one of them. The group never learned its name. Um, they only know that pretty much everything there was dead. With the exception of one. Dandy, like everyone else, running through, searching the homes. Behind one home comes across a young girl. Probably no older than seven or eight years old. The wound in her stomach is horrendous. It's a miracle that the child's still alive at all. Dandy starts screaming for Artemis. Um, and Michael's there first. You know, he, he wasn't far. And he gets in, and eventually Artemis comes in. And the little girl barely has a pulse. Um, and Artemis, you know, races in to see what she can do. And she checks. And Artemis has healing spells. She has power. But some wounds are beyond even what Artemis can heal. She just doesn't... The, the child is too far gone. The, the wounds are too increasing. When she tells this... Dandy, of course, begins to cry. And the little girl looks at her. A little young kinder child. Because, again, very often in these situations, the kinder children will be raised by the elders, grandfathers and grandmothers, while the younger kinder are still out roaming the world. But she looks up and she sees Dandy, and her eyes, bloody with wounds, looks at Dandy and, in her shock, thinks Dandy is someone else. And just says, Mama, why did this happen? Mama, why did they hurt me? And Dandy can't speak. She tries, but she can't think of anything to say. And they sit there for just a couple minutes while the young child dies in Dandy's arms. Shadow walks out. Um, they don't see him for a little bit. Zarin normally the negative of the group, even he is touched by everything going on here. There's tears in his eyes. And he continues searching for anyone else, as does pretty much the group, except for Dandy and Michael. And Dandy, for the first time in her life, feels the closest to a, what a kender can feel is fear. N not for herself or fear of death, but it's her first feeling of fear for the life of someone else. Adventures are an adventure. It's all fun and games. And while there's scary, dangerous things, and she's got friends, and you sometimes get hurt, and sometimes you have to hurt other people, it's all an exciting adventure. But in that one moment, for the first time, Dandy felt fear for the people she cared about. What if someone she loved was the person in her arms who died at this moment? What if it was Artemis? Or Mercy, or even Darsh. That one almost hurts more. She's got such a love for him like a big brother. And he's a little protective over her, even though he likes to give her hell all the time. And sitting there underneath, she sets the little girl down, and Michael comes over with a, a little blanket that he finds and covers the little girl up. And Dandy changes very quickly from fear and sorrow to anger. Just a seething rage starts to burn into Danny. And 
Again, Kender can get angry, get upset, but it's not very characteristic. And she just begins to stand up and just pace back and forth, her hands clenching and unclenching, just in furiousness. And all she wants is to find that drow. She wants to find him and she wants to kill him. She wants to hurt him. These aren't thoughts that a Kender normally would just have. And she's just going back and forth muttering, muttering to herself. And she doesn't even know what she's saying. She just knows that all she can think of is she wants to give that pain back to him over and over again. She feels a touch on her arm and for a minute she forgets there's anyone there and she stops and Michael is looking at her. Now again, Michael's very short. He's still not as short as her. But he's, he's, he's just a little bit above her. And he takes her hand and he drops down to his knee. And he says, It was you who saved my life and gave me a chance again. You gave me back my life. And in exchange, I gave you my heart. I feel your anger and I feel your remorse. And I swear to you, I will spend the rest of my life doing everything I can to help you get back. To take back what they've taken from you. To make sure that everything that's gone wrong goes right. I will be by your side until death takes me. My life is yours. Dandy taken aback. Not quite sure how. Wasn't expecting anything like that. She sees the edges of tears in his eyes. And in his eyes, he's, she sees fear as well, but she realizes it's not fear of the enemy or fear of the friends or fear of loss. It's fear of her. Fear that something's going to happen to her, that she's going to be hurt, he's going to lose her. And nothing in the world scares him more than that at this moment. And she can see all that in that moment. And she, taking his hand, pulls him back up, and then she just gently comes in and gives him a hug. And he takes her back, and they just stand there holding each other for a couple minutes. Dandy's anger is still there. It's in the back of her mind. But she knows that no matter what happens, she has friends and people that are going to be there for her. And she's going to make sure that A, they're safe, and B, things like this won't happen anymore. It's a very important part for, uh, a very important moment for Dandy's character development, was this part of the story. And, um, we, I planned that kind of in purpose, and the the character or the the the, the player who was playing Dandy um, was wonderful. A lot of the things that I talked about right there, she explained to me how she, how Dandy. This is what Dandy was feeling. This is how Dandy reacted, because the young lady uh, who's a very good friend of mine who played that character was very knowledgeable about Kendra. She she'd read much about them and she knew what they were like. So to make them act, make Dandy act outside the normal to show how extreme this situation affected her she knew what that meant that that this literally changed her from how someone would normally perceive a kender would act in a situation and in that moment dandy realizes she has feelings for michael as well and together they leave the little girl and go out to meet their friends their friends have gathered and state very clearly that they weren't able to find any other survivors. And you can see that all of them are just pissed. And very silently, without saying much, they all proceed after the drought. Normally, 
they would stop, bury the dead, take care of the homes. They have every intention of coming back to do that. But they have to get to the drow before this happens again. And so they get on their horses and they get going. And now they're pushing their horses even more than they did before. And even Zarin, who normally is more about profit and gamble and not putting their life on the line, same situation. We do what we got to do. Let's go. They travel short distance before they come out of the woods. And now they can see that the Artemis' amulet is telling them that the drow are going north. They've come great south from where they were before. Last week or so of chasing them, they've gone very far south, but now they've made a sharp turn north. And so north they go, chasing after the drow. And take a drink real quick. That's all we're going to talk about them for a little while. Because now we're going to go very far away. Very, very deep underground. Almost to the center of the world, you could say. But it's not. The size of this world is just too massive. But it's definitely very deep. We're going to return to the other group of characters that we haven't spoken to in a few weeks. And that's the group of Darsh, Fig, Willow, and Mercy, and their little friend Moog, the Gully Dwarf. If you'll remember, at our last adventure, they had been traveling deep underground, chasing artifacts of their own. They managed to get one from a small drow community. Yes, you'll notice I use drow a lot. There's reasons for that. You'll know later. And then they continued even deeper until they came to a castle, basically. That doesn't look like it belonged underground, but currently was. And inside they fought a giant monster thing. It was hurting, injuring the group, and they managed to Defeat it pretty well. Uh, Moog and Willow to the rescue there. Managed to injure it severely till it, it ran off. Couldn't kill it. It's too powerful. But at least it ran away nursing its wounds. And the rest of them proceeded inside of, a, inside of the tower of the castle. Which was partially infused with what looked like a massive growth of quartz that went right into the wall of the, the cavern that they were in. And inside there they found that the quartz had cracked. And laying on the ground there was one of the artifacts they were looking for. A footman's lance. Just laying there on the ground. Blood still crusty on it. And inside of that, they also found a body. And they managed to dig it out. They weren't going to until they saw the fingers move. And they realized this person trapped inside the quartz was alive. Ever so small wounds. They break him out and it's a man. His hair and beard long. Didn't look like he's more than his late 20s, early 30s. Wounded in multiple areas, the wounds not healed, but at the same time didn't seem to have gotten infected or go worse over time, almost like he'd been suspended in time inside that rock. And Willow immediately starts using what healing spell she has left on this guy that they found. Looking around, they, while she's doing that, um, Mercy was looking around and looking at the quartz, and she finds that on the other side of the quartz, through the crack that they found, there's another path leading up through the wall of the cavern further in. Oh, real quick here. i got a question in the group. Now it says, question is which one is it? Ah! Very good question. 
That's a very good question. Because the person, when, when they called Mercy back, on the armor that he was wearing was a symbol of, of, of a quarter moon with fire coming out of it. Now these guys know the story. They were told a lot of the story by um, Zoltan, the demigod who set them on this quest. And the man unconscious, Will was able to heal what wounds he did have and such. Some of them were relatively bad, but not as bad as you would have thought. They looked like almost like they were worse at one point. They didn't heal all the way, but they weren't terminal. Something kept them from becoming worse and bleeding out and all that kind of stuff. And not knowing what else to do, they're like, this guy's big. Darsh could carry him. The pathway on the other side of the quartz is big enough for them all to fit through. And there's even a bit of a dried blood trail and dusty footprints going that direction. Someone else was in this rock as well, but they broke themselves out and were managed, managed to leave. And, like, we need to, whatever. They spin their little necklace Willow does real quick, and it just points straight up. They know, at this point, either the artifact's above them or there's no more underground. They've gotten two under here so far. One from the drow. They also got one from um, Tavork in the one or two, if I remember correctly, from the, the Kingdom of Fire Moon before they even sent them down here. And then they found this down the land. So this group got a good chunk of these so far. While waiting for the men to rest, they search the room, while at the same time keeping an eye on that door. They know that creature's out there. If that thing tries to get at them again, going up that other tunnel's their best way. There's no way they're going to get back out of the castle all the way to the entrance they came in first. Not if that thing's still out there. It's too much open ground. Um, I'm going to be honest, I'm I'm going to mention one thing here real quick, and I apologize. There was one cool thing that it, I had forgotten to mention as the story, and I'd like to go back and, and re, recap that real quick. Um, because it was something I'd forgotten about till I went over what few notes and I was going over the story in my head. There was one minor beat that was kind of cool, but it was cool for the character development. Um, in their travels, they had come across a magical book. And on that, they opened up the book, and on that page was a spell. Mercy had found the book. And when she opened the book, she found she could cast that spell once per day. Not a magic user, she's a warrior. But the book gave her the ability to cast that spell once a day. But if she flips the page, you can never flip back. So you don't know what spell's on the next page. If you close the book and open it up again in the middle, you're missing all the pages. We never go back to those again. So what they did is they set that book on a shelf in the chest of holding, because you can shake the chest of holding around, it's not going to knock the book around, because inside, it's an extra planar space which just stays the same. And it gave her a spell. Now, she actually had a relatively powerful healing spell, because sometimes it's a wizard spell, sometimes a clear spell. And this is a magic item that exists within Dungeons & Dragons. I did not create this. This is a Dungeons & Dragons uh, book of spells here. And it's very cool. Um, it's pretty powerful, too. Um, but I gave it for a reason. Um, and she'd flip the pages a couple times because they'd be in a, a really big pickle and she's like, ah, this spell's not going to work. Maybe the next one would be better. If you just thumb through all the pages, the book just disappears. Once you've turned to the last page, it's gone. Never usable again. Um, and fortunately, they were able to figure that out. 
They found it after they had Zarin, or else Zarin would have taken the bow. But none of them really could needed it, so it became Mercy's. And Mercy had a very powerful heal spell. So once a day, she had a very powerful healing spell she could cast. It was actually a cleric spell, but she's like, that's a good spell. I don't see many situations I'm going to change it from that point. While they were fighting that big creature, at one point it throws down a wall of fire, casts a spell. And it was casting the spell and holding it, so well, as long as it concentrated, they couldn't move forward. And I did that to challenge them. I wanted to see what they are going to do. And Mercy's like, I just run and jump through the fire. And I'm like, the fire is like two or three feet thick. It's a magical fire. It's not a normal fire. It's going to probably hurt you a lot, if not kill you. I'm like, are you sure? She goes, I totally want to do it. I'm like, okay. You jump through. We roll the damage. I'm like, you're almost dead. Willow's on the other side of the fire. She can't heal you. Mercy's like, I use my spell. I totally forgot the thing existed. So she literally jumped through the fire. It melted skin off of her, burned her hair off and stuff. She cast this heal spell on herself, back to normal, just kept on running and attacked the thing, which disrupted the spell and let everybody else come through. It was a really cool moment, and I felt really bad after I remembered it that I didn't share it originally. Um, it was just a, it was a, it didn't change the story at all, but it was a cool character beat for Mercy. And I felt bad that I, I had missed that because it was a very good good point for her. She hadn't had a whole ton of these down here other than with the, the one drow guy. Uh, so I didn't want to go back and recap that. I apologize that I did not mention it sooner. Um, but now they're at the point she doesn't have a heal spell. She's used it for the day. Um, and so and, and when I say for the day, once she, she casts the spell, she can't use it for 24 hours. So it's not like at midnight it's good again. You have to go at least 24 hours before you can cast a spell. So if you cast it one minute before midnight, you can't cast it until a minute before midnight the next day. So just an idea of how that works. But I should have mentioned that earlier. So after a little while, they're watching no sign of the monster thing. They're searching the room. And they're finding little odds and ends. So there's actually a bit of wealth in here, they find. There's some chests with coins and gems in them. Um, there's you know, some of the art on the walls kind of faded and worn, but um, it's high value, you know, silks and such, golden thread weaved within it. Definitely this castle, or at least this room, was originally housed someone, someone of wealth. Um, they find, you know, silver candelabras. The candle's long since gone, um, but candelabras on there, things of that nature. They find gems and such. Even Moog is finding things, and he's like, I find a shiny, and Fig's like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a ruby the size of a jawbreaker, that's awesome. He's like, I have shiny? He's like, yes, you can keep the shiny, there's a lot of wealth here, and what's a gully dwarf going to do? He says, don't eat it. He's like, I won't eat it, it's a shiny, hurt my teeth. But he's like, okay, yes, you can, you find a shiny, you get to keep it. He's like, yeah, I get shinies, because, again, he's a young man, but he's very childlike in nature. He goes around, and he has a little bag that Fig had bought for them a long, long time ago, a little, little pouch, and he finds things, and he's... He's showing Fig some of his treasures, and he's like, look, I find a shiny, and it's a broken piece of the quartz. Next to it is a diamond. And they're like, he's like, you know, this one's worth a lot more. And he's like, they're shinies. And he puts them both in his pouch, because in his eyes, they're both awesome. They're both really cool. They're valuable. They're shiny. They glisten. One may be worth a thousand gold pieces. One may be worth nothing. But in Moog's eyes, they have the same value. So he's, he's going around picking up little shinies, and he's always trying to show them to Fig. Fig's like, yes, yes, you got another shiny. That's great. I'm trying to find out who this guy in the armor is and make sure the giant monster doesn't kill me again. And Moog starts gathering up shinies. And, and they, of course, you know, Darsh and Mercy are like, there's no reason to leave this here. We could probably use it. So they start loading as much of the wealth into the chest of holding as they can while Willow tends to the man on the, on, in the corner who was hurt. The quartz man, we'll call him. Uh, 
And they find, like I said, it's a small wealth. I mean, it wouldn't make them kings by any means, but it's a, it's a hefty coin. They could buy a ship with this. They could probably build a small fort. I mean, there's, there's a chunk of wealth here, especially in the gems. The gems seem to be of, of very, very good quality. And while they're cleaning things up and getting as much of the wealth and stuff that they can find in there, they find in the stone, because it's built out of stone, the stone floor has burn marks in it. And I mean, something so hot that it actually burnt lines into the stone itself. And they appear to be some type of runic structure. Now, looking at it, Mercy's like, this looks like magic stuff to me. Will looks at it and says, yes, it does not look like cleric magic. It looks like it's magical runes of some kind. Some powerful spell was cast here at some point. They decide they've been through a lot. They're going to have to rest. This room, not the safest. They decide to move just up the tunnel a little bit, so that way they have an escape plan if they need to. They set a little fire um, in around where the, in the room there, so they can let the... They take the... Darsh picks him up like he's nothing. He just moves the injured quartz man up the tunnel a little bit, and they set up camp just in there where they can still be in the room, do the loading, and it takes a, a good couple hours to gather up everything. I say, imagine a chest that had broken and just coins and stuff went everywhere. You know, Almost like a <laughs> explosion had knocked stuff flying. So it takes them a little bit to gather it all up, but they do that, and they find themselves a little bit of wealth. Nothing wrong with that. In the story, if I remember correctly, they find one or two small random magic items as well. Uh, but nothing of major importance that I need to talk of right now. But from a Dungeons & Dragons perspective, yes, there were a couple random magical items that they found here as well. And, and gems and such. And, and Moog was super happy because he got his little shinies and he gets to play with some things. Well... They see no more signs of the, of the creature that night. They rest. When they get up the next morning, or Shadow wakes up the next... We're going to say morning. When she wakes up, you know. It's been a, a sleep time. It's, they're underground. There's no day or nights here. But after she slept, she wakes up, and she finds the man is conscious, and he's just kind of laying there looking at the party, not saying anything. She, she gets some water and brings it to him, and he's able to move his hands, and he doesn't say anything. He nods and thanks and takes the water, sips it, although his hands tremble a little bit, he's still kind of weak. She kneels down and she's like, are you still hurt? Do you hurt anywhere? I am a healer, I am a cleric, I am a druid of the healing arts, and if you have any other injuries, I've done what I could, but I might be able to do more. Is there anything that I can do to help you further? And he speaks for the first time, and he says, no, my lady, thank you. Um, I am still sore and I hurt, but I, I can tell my wounds themselves are no longer of severity. I'm, I'm more feel more weak than anything else. How do I come to be here? Willow wants to ask him his name. Wants to ask him. So my question for you, how did you come to be stuck in a rock? But she understands that they're a group. He's by himself. They're armed. They have a minotaur. That's imposing. Everybody else is waking up at this point and getting whatever going and you know, making some food. Fig is their cook. Fig's a great cook. So Fig's mixing up some stuff that they've got. He starts, they have a small fire. He gets some stuff in the chest to hold and got some spices. He makes up some potatoes, whatever the case is. Makes him up some meals. Want to give something to the to the injured man as well. Give him something relatively hearty. So he makes a like a uh, like a like a brothy breakfast stew, if you will, something that he'll be able to swallow hopefully a little bit easier. So he gets that going the leftovers from the previous night's meal. And 
Willow proceeds to tell them the story. He says, why not? There's nothing to hide. He goes, I was, we were questing, looking for these magical artifacts. We found one here. We're deep underground. Explains, she asks, do you know what the merging is? Man has no idea. She explains the merge. Explains the timeline. It's been almost a year since the merge at this point. The groups split up like a month, month and a half ago at this point. They've gone their own directions for quite a while. Um, but to explain the timeline, say that they were approached by a demigod to try to get these artifacts because of so on and so forth, and that they've come deep into the earth, and that's how they found this place. And they found this guy stuck inside some quartz. And as soon as they mention that there's the shape of a second one, the man's eyes open wide. And he goes, is he still here? And they're like, he? No. When we showed up, there was no one else here. Just a bit of blood and the lance on the ground. The man puts his head back and closes his eyes for a moment. You can tell he's thinking. And he says, in that, trapped inside that rock with myself, I can only guess was my brother, as he was the only one in the room when the explosion happened. And it was his damn spell that I believe caused this entire mess. The man introduces himself as Rafe Fireman. Says he knows Zoltan all too well. That he'd been, for years, he and his brother had been aiding the Grey One in one quest or another to try to gather up the damn artifacts that Zoltan could never seem to keep hold of. And that uh, it was in the quest and pursuit of these things that his brother turned to the dark wizardly arts. Not in I hate all wizards, but in the dark side of wizardly arts. Rafe doesn't hate wizards. Not a big fan. You can understand with his history. Before this, he was okay. But once the brother went bad thing, he's like for he doesn't really trust magic at all. Does he blame magic for turning his brother? Does he blame his brother's turning for going to magic? That's something you'd have to ask him. But not something we're going to discuss right now. But he's not a fan of mages. Totally respects clerics, though. They are men of the gods, both he and his brother were. Even though his brother was turned out to be kind of a dick, his brother also was a man of the gods because he was trying to become one. So serving the gods, the demigods, they've been doing for most of their adult life at this point. Rafe explains that he, his brother was casting a spell in the hopes of destroying those artifacts and using their magic to become a god. The only thing he could do, as much as it hurt him, was to stab his brother with the only item he could get a hold of, which was that footman's lance. That disrupted the spell, there was an explosion, and then that was it. That's all he remembers. He says he remembers dreams of cold and of ice. He remembers fire itself, like he was bathing in it, even though it, he felt its extreme heat, it didn't harm him. He felt like he was far away from everything, like he was floating in space. Different images and pictures that shoot through his mind, but nothing that makes a lot of sense. The group, they know who Rafe is, and they had suspected that it was either Rafe or Nylont. The fact that it was dressed like a warrior and not a mage kind of lend them more towards Rafe, but they didn't want to assume for sure. The banner on his chest matching the ones that they saw back at the castle or Kingdom of Firemoon. They explained that they know who he is. Zoltan had told them the story, and they also mentioned that they'd been to his kingdom. And at this, he perks right up. He's like, did anyone make it? Is anyone alive? Because at this point, they've told him about the merge. He knows all about the worlds getting broken up and people searching for their way home and all that kind of stuff. And they said, yes, we found right now your lady is still there. 
Um, your friends have been out searching for you. Tabork is ruling in your stead as a reagent just until they could hopefully find you. They do mention that he lost his arm. There's a twinge of pain in his eyes when that... Because again, Rafe was always one to take take things upon himself. This happened because of my brother. And even though it wasn't Rafe who did that, Rafe feels to blame because it was his brother that caused this problem. The merge at this point, you must understand that that just weighs upon his soul. All these... How many people died? Worlds shifted because of the insanity of his brother's goals and aspirations caused all this. And maybe, in the back of his head, he's thinking, if I hadn't stabbed him and let the spell go through, maybe none of this would have happened. Everybody would be okay. My brother would be a god. But let's not dwindle on the past, Lisi says to himself. We must move forward. I have to get back to my, to my people. And they're like, well, we'll... We can help you get there. I mean, your people definitely helped us, gave us tons of supplies, gave us one of these artifacts. And they're kind of like, and it's at this point that Mercy's like, your people gave us some of the artifacts and we've gathered others. Do you wish to take them back? Not asking, hey, do you want us to give them to you? But is it something you want? And Rafe stops a moment. You can tell he's thinking. He's looking at Mercy. He looks at the group and he goes, no, my days chasing after those are gone. It would seem that the gray man has found a new generation to do his bidding, to chase after these damn things. I will tell you that I am more than happy to pass that burden on to someone else. Right now, I just want to get back to my people and make sure they're okay, because from what you've explained to me, I can only assume that if I made it, my brother made it as well. And he may seek them out, and I can't take that chance. And they're like, yeah, understandable. We've got to get out of here, too. So, they said then Takes a little bit for Rafe. He gets some food and water down. He gets up on his feet. A little wobbly, but as they get going, his strength is returning. And they have to go a little slow with him for the first while. But, all in all, they're okay. Uh, let's see. Comment Neon says, pass the torch. Still, someone needs to go kick Zoltan's ass. Yeah, Zoltan. Yeah, I love Zoltan. Zoltan is probably the most hands-down annoying NPC I've ever created because he just pops up to make people's lives difficult. Again, I've given you the overview of this story, but for individual adventures, he has a habit of popping up at the worst times and like, it's your birthday party. Oh, by the way, I need you to go fight a dragon. <laughs> One of the daggers got loose. You know, things like that. Zoltan has been a thorn in the side of the Fire Moons for a long time by this point. And so Rafe is more than happy to let the next generation, a wholehearted group, because they tell him about the others. There's another group of four of us out there chasing. They don't know about Michael or anything, but they said we have four of our, of our allies are out there seeking them as well. And if they still live, hopefully we can eventually meet up with them and whatever happens. So they proceed. They're like, okay, at this point, we need to get out of here. At the same time, there's one thing that Rafe does mention that is irritating him a little bit. And it kind of catches the party by surprise when he mentions it, because it's something no one had ever thought of. And to be honest with you, in the groups we were playing, no one had ever thought of it either. Rafe is a little irritated. He goes, for years, my brother and I chased those weapons, seeking them across our world. Not one time were we given an amulet that showed us where they were. At no point were we given a hint or a guiding hand by the gray man. It was a I can tell you where to start, then it's all up to you. I can't be involved. 
And he says, it intrigues me that not only was he able to make one for you, he made one for another person, yet we never got one in all those years. Because I have a feeling that I'm going to have to have a conversation with the demigod in the near future. Which in itself seems absurd when he says it with the confidence he does, but Ray Firemoon always had a high charisma. And I'm not saying the number, he just did, even the way he was played. He always had that leadership thing. And that's why people, when, even when he and his brother were a group, he was in charge. When he and his brother split, all the parties stayed with Rafe. Rafe had that charisma, that leadership quality about him. And when he said something confidently, you were like, yeah, okay, I totally see you having a conversation with the demigod, and I think you might be able to hold your own in that situation. Because that's just the kind of guy Rafe was. If you'll remember, Rafe is modeled after Thomas Jane, the actor. Uh, if you're not familiar, you can go to my website, onlydraven.com. If you click on Merge Worlds at the top, there's a page that says Characters. If you click on that, you'll see pictures for all the different actors, if you've not been here before. <laughs> i show you the actors and actresses that I use as a way to describe what the characters look like. And Thomas Jane is Rafe Fireman, who I've always thought had a high charisma as well. And he just looks like he could whoop you, so I like that. So, they proceed to make their way up the tunnel following after, which they can only assume, is the direction that Nylat Firemoon went as well. The one thing, though, that they notice very quickly, because none of them are trackers like Shadow and, and, and Dandy by any means. Mercy is by far their best in that regard. Darsh is pretty good when it comes to like smells and stuff. That's just a minotaur ability, to be able to trace by scent much like a dog can, depending on how old it is. Mercy is a little bit more skill in that way. And what she realizes, they do find a little bit of blood there at the beginning that stops very quickly, but there are no footprints. At no time do they see any footprints. They leave footprints when they're walking, but they don't see any footprints in the ground. So, did he cast a spell? Did he even walk up here? Did he teleport? He's got wild magic. Who knows what is going on with that guy? But they don't find footprints, so they can't chase after him specifically. Um, but luckily, once again, the amulet comes in handy. They begin to travel. And as they travel, they spin the amulet, it will sometimes point in a different direction. They get to a branch in the past that will say, go this way or this way. It's always leading them the path they need to go to get the next artifact. Not always directly to that artifact, but the path they need to go to get to it. Uh, the shortest route, if you will. So, they proceed traveling. Now, if you remember, I mentioned that they were, they've been underground for weeks at this point. Now, They've traveled a great distance. They weren't just going straight down. They were going down and on angles and winding. They have no idea where they are in relativity to where they actually entered the Underdark. You know, they could be coming right up next to it. They could be 400 miles away. Yeah, who knows? This world is crazy. Who knows if distances are even the same under the ground as they were over the ground. That's something else I have to address later because we don't know yet. So at this point, the question is, okay, we got to get out of here. Let's get going. But they travel. And they still travel for a good couple of weeks. It does not take them anywhere near as much time to get up than it did to get down. The path they're taking has very few branches. They don't run into problems. They don't run into a drow city. They don't run into any real living creatures. A couple small animals. They see a lizard here and there, things like that. But nothing of severity. Even though they're cautious, they don't come across anything of danger. It doesn't take long before Rafe is pretty back to, back to normal again. They arm him with what gear they have in the uh, chest of holding. He's got a he's a, he's always been a sword and shield kind of guy, so he has his he has a sword and a shield that they have, and he's wielding that. Um, 
they know that he's experienced. Lord knows he's got a kingdom, and he got that from whooping people. So it's not a situation where he's a, a king that had no training. He's a king that definitely knows how to fight, and not knowing what's ahead of them, they want him souped up. So they get to move him. And they travel on. It takes a while, as you can imagine. Um, they camp often for what feels like days or nights. There's no way to keep time down here. When I say they travel for days or weeks, that's what happens, but they don't have an actual... For them, it could seem much longer or much shorter since there's no day-night cycle underground. Which is weighing on all of them at this point, with the exception of Fig. For Fig, he's perfectly fine. Growing up among dwarves, he sometimes went years without ever seeing the surface, you know, when he was, especially when he was younger. So um, it was quite common for him to do that. But for everybody else, it's hard. Mercy, luckily, has that magical um, head tiara thing that lets her see underground or see in darkness. So to her, it's like daylight all the time. She does not like to be without it. Uh, she, she could staple it to her head. She would. Um, but when she sleeps, you know, she normally has to take it off because it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if you've ever tried sleeping in a bright daylight, shines through your eyelids. It makes it hard to sleep. Same thing for her. So it's one of those things where she'll have to take it off, but it's one of those things that she'll have, like, she'll literally tie it to herself kind of thing. If something were to happen in the night, she wants to be able to get it tied to her wrist or tied to her, her necklace or something like that. Um, which was a good thing. that She did do that. Now, in the grand scheme of things, on their way back up, when it came to the gameplay itself, there were a couple minor combats that they had. A couple, uh, nothing intelligent, mostly some underdark creatures they came across. I believe they fought a hook horror at one point. If you're not sure what a hook horror is, let me know and we'll talk about that. But they didn't have anything major. No major life beats. Just the normal, what you'd expect, random encounters of a D&D adventure. Uh, so while they got some fighting, maybe got a little bit of treasure here and there, nothing of importance. But they still take the time to get up there. Now, we're about to talk about something that I really enjoy. Uh, something that I like that the characters did not. But it was great for the story. If you remember me mentioning it, when I say that, that usually means it's bad for the players, but it's great for the story. And this is probably the biggest point of contention in my story. That some people don't like that I've added this part. So I'd like to get your feedback on it, but... I do it for a reason. They're traveling up and up, and again, no idea how, how close they are to the surface at this point. For all they know, they're coming up under a mountain, they're going to have to travel twice as far. You just don't know. They're just hoping that eventually they don't come uh, into a problem. And yes, Neon, it's about that time. <laughs> I love that line. About that time. Yeah, that's the worst thing a player character can hear from me. About that time means uh, you should get your dice out and get ready. <laughs> so, they're traveling, and as they're walking, um, you know, just like a normal day, in the Underdark, traveling, Darsh occasionally literally has to almost crawl sometimes. The tunnels are so low, but they're never small enough that he can't get through. He's never on his stomach, but sometimes he has to get on his hands and knees to crawl under dips and spot. And that's one thing that can slow them down as well, because while he's a really big dude, remember, he's got those big horns, too. He's got big minotaur horns. So that's a whole other thing to maneuver underground. It is not built for Minotaur on here, by any means. And the party order in this group, with the five of them, is Darsh first, at, at this point, and then they have Rafe next. Then they have Willow, Moog, and then Fig is in the end. 
Fig is the, is the back guy. Now, Fig, a lot of times, he and Darsh will switch, depending on the situation. If it's a small tunnel, something like that, then he's going to go first. Darsh likes to be up front. He's the biggest dude. Something comes charging at him. They're going to have our time getting past him to get to anybody else. Um, but sometimes, if it's a smaller tunnel or it's something that seems a bit more twisty or multiple choice, Fig, with his more experience underground, will take the lead in those situations. But one of them is always at the front and one of them is always at the back. Same type of idea as the party order before. Fighter in the front, fighter in the back. So if you get attacked from the back, you still have your squishies in the middle. That's how we call them, your squishies. That's your, your clerics, your rogue characters. Um, having your, If you have two warriors or multiple warriors, it's best to put one in the second spot because, again, you're most often time going to be attacked from the front. You've got two warriors up front to be that wall. So there's the thing. Um, so that's the party order as they're moving forward. And at this time, Darsh is in front. Right? Darsh isn't having any problem moving along. Tunnels are actually a little bit bigger than they've run into a lot of spaces, which is nice. Darsh feels like he doesn't not quite as cramped in. He gets to move a little bit, which is nice. So Darsh is bumbling along a little bit. And he sees Keanu Reeves turning on the screen. What is that? James, thank you very much. I appreciate the 99 cent super chat. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate that. Awesome. Thank you, sir. <laughs> so uh Darsh is feeling pretty good about himself. And he's walking. And even though he's being extra careful, something happens that he doesn't quite notice at first. He takes a step, and the sound of his foot hitting the ground makes a slightly different noise. It doesn't move. There's no pressure plate there, no trap-like thing. It's just like, imagine if you're walking across the floor and you walked on linoleum, and then wood, and then concrete. Your footsteps would sound slightly different. Or maybe different, depending on what you're stepping on. So he's got big old boots. He's got big old boots. Darsh's a heavy guy. So when he steps on it, of all of them, he's the one that makes a slightly different noise. Willow's really the only one who picks up on it. But they're walking along. She really doesn't have a chance to say much. Because the next person who walks on it is Rafe. The noise is not as different. And the next person to step on that spot is Willow. And in that moment, Willow is filled with such an overwhelming fear of dread and horror that she literally screams out, stumbling backwards and tripping over Moog, who doesn't know what's going on. Everybody starts grabbing their weapons. Willow stops, her hand on her heart, stops screaming, and she's just kind of looking around, and everybody's like, what is it? What happened? Who's attacking us? Who do we kill? Nothing happens. Everybody stands there silently waiting for an attack, but nothing comes. So finally, they're like, Willow, what happened? She says, everything was gone. I felt nothing. Everything was gone. Her eyes are still wide in horror, and they're like, I don't, what, do you, what do you mean? Like, you're floating in space? She goes, no, I, I felt nothing. There was nothing around. I felt nothing at all. And they're like, listen, you're standing on stone. You're touching rock. You need to be a little bit more descriptive. They were probably not as nicely worded as I said that. But it's like, tell us what you mean, woman. You know, that kind of thing. That's how Darsh is. Tell us what you mean. And she said, I feel nature. Even deep within the earth, I can still feel nature. There are still plants. And there are living things. And I feel their aura. And I feel the gods and the goddess. His, she's a 
wild guess, so it's a female goddess. But I feel the goddess, even though I can't quite feel her touch like we did before the merge, I can still sense that she's always there. I can feel her in the magic that she gives me that I'm able to put out, in the feeling of nature as it's around. I can sense that aura of all living things. Druid thing. She goes, but for a brief moment, all of that was gone. It was like my magic had just disappeared. No longer did I feel any connection to the gods. No longer could I feel connection to anything around me. It was like I stood here in an empty void. And I've never felt anything like that. And everybody else in this group? They're like, okay, well, you none of us really felt that, um, but, you know, okay, what do we do? And she's like, we have to try to continue on. We haven't passed a branch in the tunnel in almost a day, day and a half. There's no way we can go all the way back. The amulet is specifically telling us to go here. And Darth's like, do you want to try again? Here, I'll walk a few steps ahead, see what happens. And he does, and he walks. And she's like, right there, I could hear the sound was different when you stepped there. And she, he's like, okay. And he clumps his foot a little bit, and he goes, it does have a bit of a different sound to it. He goes, it's a different color. And he gets down, and he taps it, and he goes, it's hard. It's hard. Some type of stone. I've never seen it. It's just a different type of rock. But Lord knows with the merge, I've seen all sorts of different types of rock. So, I mean, I have no idea what type of rock this is. But, I mean, it's, it's one big solid slab of rock, but so has been much we've walked down here. It's just a, a little bit lighter in color than the brown rock and gray rock around us. And she's like, okay, I want to try again. And I'm like, okay, so Darsh steps up the tunnel a little bit, keeping an eye, make sure there's nothing coming down at him. The others stay back, and she slowly steps up, and she looks down, and she can see where that, where that stone changes. And she steps forward, and again, it's all gone. This time, it's not, as, it's not as big of a surprise. Still a horrible shock. But she's able to hold on to herself. And she's like, can you hear me? They're like, yeah, we hear you just fine. You're right there. She's like, tell me if you can hear this. And she begins to, to cast a spell. But immediately stops. There's no words in her mind. The magic is gone. There's completely zero magic here. And she has no connection with the earth or the planet. The gods, none of it. Because this is what happens when you step in a dead magic zone. Dead magic zones are very rare in most D&D. Sometimes, some worlds, they don't even exist. But it's a spot completely devoid of magic. And depending on its power level, how devoid of magic it is, can affect other things as well. She quickly takes out the chest of holding and sets it on the ground and speaks the command word, and nothing happens. It just sits there. And it's tiny little form. doesn't get bigger. They can't open it. She picks it up, walks back out. second she steps off that rock, she feels the magic flood back into her again. She can set it down. The chest of holding opens perfectly fine. Rafe is like, I've never, never seen anything like this before. Willow, being a little bit more knowledgeable, is like, well, she doesn't know the term dead magic zone, but she's able to suss it out. She goes, whatever that, I don't know if it's that rock, but starting there, I have lost all my magic. And from what I can tell, as do our magic items. Those items that we have that give us magic, I don't know how the artifacts would be affected. I'm afraid to take them out of the chest of holding. 
Because, again, we keep him in there so that the darkness and his minions can't find him. Inside there, they're not findable because it's a separate plane of existence thing, blah, blah, blah. So, we're like, like, what do we do? I mean, if all of our gear... Because they have some magical weapons at this point. They've got a little bit of magical gear on them. They're not overpowered magically, but they've got some stuff. A ring of feather fall here. You know what I mean? A sword plus two over there. There's some basic stuff in the group. But if they walk forward and all of a sudden all that's gone, they're a lot weaker than they were before. Not being able to get in the chest of holding is a huge thing. How far are we going to travel? All of our supplies are in there. Our food, our water. What if we have to travel a week or two weeks through this? We can't get any of our supplies out. So they stop and they plan. And they just spend the night. They go back down the tunnel a little bit and they decide to spend some time resting there before moving forward. Talking it over, they determine that they try to go back, then they they may have to take another route. Who knows which way it's going to go? The, the amulet said to go this way. The amulet has never steered them wrong yet. And yes, they did try the amulet. It doesn't work either. Nothing works magically once they step onto basically that rock, that port of land. And again, I'm sure you can imagine at this point, Merge World, right? That's a spot of a new that's, that's a dead magic zone. How big is it? They don't know. It may take us. 15 minutes to walk through it could take us 15 days. So the best thing we can do is be prepared for a long term. So they go in and they start pulling out backpacks, things that they haven't had to carry in a long time, ever since they got the chest to hold. They start loading themselves up. They give Rafe a backpack. They got plenty of extra gear in there. Give Rafe, start loading up all the canteens they can find, filling up any bottles, whatever, with, with water from their barrels they have underneath. Um, getting all the food stuffs out they can carry, especially the lightweight stuff like jerky, which... For the record, Willow never eats. She's a pure vegetarian, so she has... Not a pure vegetarian. She doesn't eat meat, but we'll work on it. But they get what supplies they can. We're going to have to take this with us and hope we can carry enough. They load themselves down. In combat, they're going to have a problem because they're literally overloaded with stuff. But they feel... Even even Moog got a backpack, which he thought was awesome because he's like, he's never had a backpack. That's cool. I'm carrying stuff like Figgy. He could call himself a horsey. He pretended he was trotting around a little bit. That was for, you know, at first, like anybody else, after a while, you get tired of carrying a backpack. But he had his own little supplies in the back. He's like, yay, I'm helping. Moog likes that stuff. Moog doesn't feel any different when he's walking back in room because Moog doesn't have any magical qualities. Do a little bit of improvision. And improvision still works. That's not magic. That's a physical ability. That's a discussion we had during this time period. Magical improvision won't work, but improvision is a physical innate ability of these creatures. It's not a magical thing, it's just what their eyes do, much more like a cat or some animals can have. So yes, their improvision will still work. Now I'm sure you're about to figure out what I'm about to say next. Mercy's tiara does not. The second she steps through, pitch blackness for her. She is not happy about that one bit. What choice does she have? Much like the early part of Avengers, she goes back to carrying a torch, which makes everybody's vision harder to use because now InfraVision doesn't work the same because there's light that's messing up your InfraVision. So that becomes a new challenge, but they've been through it before. She just has to basically hold on. I forgot to mention Mercy when we were doing the party group. I'm sorry, it was Mercy and then um, Fig at the back. We had two wars in the front, two wars in the back with Willow and... Um, Moog in the middle. I forgot about Mercy when I was talking about that. I apologize. So, they they rest there, prepare themselves. They take Mercy's head thing, and she's like, I'm going to keep it on my head. 
Because the second this ends, I want I want vision back. But everything else that they have that would be relatively magic based, they put it in the chest of holding first. Because if it's not magical, you know, magic items are harder to break. Usually more durable. With a magical wand, you could probably still break it, but it would be much harder to break than just a piece of wood the same thing. Magic makes things more durable. So without their magic, their magic stuff could break. They don't want that. So they get out some of their old gear, get their old regular weapons out. Um, you know, some of them got like a minor magical daggers. They'll keep those in their pocket just in case, but majority of their gear is back to normal. And they proceed to move on. And sure enough, the second they step through, Willow is just not having it. She is not happy about it at all. They don't have any choice. This is the way to go. Even though at this point, they realize they don't have the amulet anymore. They're going to have to guess which direction to go. So this is definitely going to slow them down, and they know that's not good. But they start traveling, and they travel for about eight hours. Now, oh, I got a question here from Neon. I'd be worried that taking the chest through a magic this place would dump the contents or destroy them. Yes, that is a conversation to be had as well. Now, dead magic zones, depending on who your DM is, can have different things. Some dead magic zones will cause all magical things to just permanently lose their ability, even if you take them back out again. I've seen some DMs will say magic items will break. Mine, the magic of it just disappears. So imagine, if you will, the magic disappears on a chest of holding. Now it's just a little mini chest. It's basically what it was when it was first crafted. It's almost like just a, a miniature toy that you would have. It doesn't open. It's a solid block at this point. When they came back out, the magic that was infused to it comes back to it. How? I can't explain right now because that will give away something later. But it does work that way. There's a reason for that. But I, again... It'll be a little bit more vague until we get to the point where I, can, I don't want to give away anything later. But yes, that's why I, had, she chest, I, I showed you that she tested the chest holding as soon as she came back out to show that magic does return. So it's not like magic is being pulled out of the items. It's like it's being paused. It's saying right here, that doesn't work anymore. When she steps out, she can sense her God's essence. She can sense the earth around her. She can't sense anything in front of her because there's nothing in there. But she can sense everything around her behind her. So they continue on. They travel for about eight hours. They get to eight hours, and at that point, they find the first split. And they can go up or down. Common sense is they go up, which is the direction that they went. Now, as they're going up, they're moving and they're going extra slow. They're being extra cautious. And the ground... When I say it's up and down, it's not like smooth. It's cracked and, and jagged in pieces. And they're like, okay, we, it's been eight hours. We should probably rest a bit soon. Let's just try to push a little bit further. Darsh is in the lead again at this point, And they're walking. And Darsh is the first to smell it. Because again, as I mentioned just a little bit a while ago, Darsh has an enhanced scent. Minotaur ability. Again, not magical. Part of him physically. And he stops. And they're like, hey, what's going on? You know, immediately they're like reaching for their weapons. Like, is there problems? He goes, I smell air. And they're like, yeah, we, we, we all smell air. That's what we're breathing. And they're like, he's no. I got a whiff of air. Different. Almost like a, not quite fresh air, but a stinky air. And not like a stinky air like sulfur or death. Just a weird, like trashy kind of smell. Like a stink of trash. Like filth. And they're like, well, that's not really helpful or hurtful, but 
okay, that means something's different. And they proceed on. A little bit slower now. And as they're traveling, they hear a weird noise in the distance. It goes, almost like a crackling of electricity. Imagine if a wizard was casting a magic spell. They stop. They've heard electrical spells before. Even Zarin had one of those. He's cast a lightning bolt now and again. Not very powerful at his level, but he has one. They're like, magic's not working for us, but maybe it's working for someone up ahead of us. So now they've got their weapons drawn. They're going even more carefully. And as they're walking, they come across a door. A door unlike anything they've ever seen. It's metal and very rectangular, but it's kind of on an, on an edge. It's stuck in place, like, almost like it was popped open, and then it's kind of stuck there. You know what I mean? So, they're like, okay. And the, the noise they're hearing is on, they see almost like a bit of flicker of light on the other side of it. Like someone's casting a spell. They go up and Darsh listens. Other than that sound, they don't really hear anything else. Tiniest thing faint, but he couldn't make out what it was. But other than that, nothing else. So he takes the door, and the handle is weird. It's metallic. He pulls on it, and the door itself is stuck. He looks at the others, and they're like giving him the go-ahead, like, you're the strong guy. And he's like, okay. He reached in, and he yanks it, and he pulls and pulls, and then the handle breaks right off in his hand. He's like, well, that wasn't for me. He sets it on the ground, he wraps his fingers around best he can, and he just pulls, and the thing just slams open with a loud noise. Well, if there was anybody on the other side, they know they're there now. Quickly, they gather their weapons. Darsh pokes out, and he sees the strangest things he's ever seen. He's in a tunnel, and the tunnel itself is made of a whitish stone, large white bricks. And you can see that there's like a ledge, and you can see up on it. He's like, okay. He looks left. The tunnel goes very, very great distance, straight, very uniform. So almost like the inside of a straw, if you will but flat on the bottom. You know what I mean? So it's not like there's no chips or hammers. It's very smooth. They proceed to move forward, carefully stepping over trash. And really, it's trash. He looks down and he sees some type of mound of filth. He doesn't get too close to it. You can tell some of the stink he's hearing. He sees rats crawling in it. He's like, ugh. Not that he hates rats, but you know, rats and filth. They have disease. They see a flashing, a little bit of flickering of light in the electric noise from the, the lightning bolt from over there. So carefully they make their way up. Careful to walk over the ground because while the walls are smooth, the bottom is not. The bottom is ridged, broken. Even like something heavy hit it and it broke up in pieces. So they're having to step over and climb over it. And they get to that ledge and they look and it's very smooth. But again, weird things all over the place. Things falling down. Looks like chairs are broken. Like chairs. Benches broken. This is clearly someone has lived here. This is a, obviously a man or, or intelligent being has created this. So they climb up as carefully as they can, moving forward, and they get, and they see flight flashing, but almost like a snake is moving. I see something, and they're like, okay, in the flashing of the sprinkles. And they've got their torches out, mind you. So they don't have any magical light at this point. And as they're waking their wake, Moog yells out, startled. 
you know, again, what's happened? They look to Moog. And fig- just points to the wall. There's a tapestry. Just a big head. Someone's face. Looks like a regular human. It's half ripped, so it's can't make it real well. It's half torn. It's very, very detailed. Very well made. Just the, the head of a man smiling. Like, it's Sandy. So they move forward. Trying to avoid the electric thing at the end. Because again, lightning bolts. Some type of snake creature. They're trying to be careful. And now Darsh gets his first scent of fresh air. Bit of a breeze. As they move a little bit closer, he's, he can see that there are stairs. Odd looking stairs, but they're stairs that are going up. Metallic stairs, made of steel. He tests them with his feet. Seems sturdy enough. He can smell the airs coming from up there, so they follow them up there. And again into another tunnel, much like the last one, but this one the ground is smooth. More old tapestries on the walls. Chairs around. You still hear the electrical noise back behind them. The kind of sparky noise. They leave it behind them. They move very carefully. And they come to another set of stairs. This one, stone stairs. This is better. No weird metallic stairs. But again, very uniform and going up. And they can see a bit of light. But it has a greenish glow to it. They make their way up these stairs. And it's stairs and up level and stairs. They go quite a distance. But they all start getting their first fresh breaths of air. And they realize they're, they're finally at the surface. They're also very sad that their magic has not come back yet. Because it hasn't, that's something that Willow would have said immediately. She, they've already got that planned out. She goes, the second I feel magic, I will let you know. Mercy, more than anybody else, feeling a sigh of relief. Because now she can see again without the aid of the torch. And the fact they're like, hey, we're about to go outside. We don't know what's out there. Let's put the torch out. You can see it's still dark in here, but there's light coming out. Even though it's got a bit of a greenish hue to it. So they make their way up the stairs. And they walk out into a land beyond their imagination. of just pure decimation. This was clearly a large city at some point. Great buildings just destroyed. Rubble everywhere. Things unlike you've ever seen before. The sky is swirling almost like green water. Be very slowly in like a... Imagine a stream, if you will. That just doesn't have a, a current, but maybe it's just kind of pooling, just swirling and... The sky has that green color. They can't tell if it's day or night. There's no sun. There's no moon. But none of them have ever seen anything like this. Rafe Rafe goes, oh my god, this is what the world looks like now that there's the merge thing? And here they're like, no, 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 no. This isn't normal. This is the first time we've seen this. Where your house is, it doesn't look anything like this. At least it didn't when we left. What has happened to the overworld while we were gone? I just realized I said, overworld, I've been playing too much Minecraft. The regular world. <laughs> they said, okay, we're going to try to move forward. What are we going to do? They don't see any signs of life. They see weird statues and things they've never seen. Shapes, rubble, trash, things mixed within like they've never seen before. It's completely blowing their minds. I'm going to take a drink. Occasionally they'll hear a, a sound like metal screeching. Or rock falling, like you'd imagine falling down the side of a mountain. Or like almost like an explosion. Something loud popping. Clanking. All from different directions. But again, they see no real signs of life. Other than rats. 
You see a mangy dog wandering around at one point. Poor puppy, but mangy dog. There's insects, mosquitoes, whatever. I mean, there's some of that. Not hordes, they're not completely being swamped by them, but there's still living things here. So they're like, okay, well, the air's not killing us, so that's a good sign. But the swirling of the green, murky water-like sky is the most discerning thing, because even, even Willow's like, I still don't feel life. I'm seeing rats, but I can't feel the rats. You know, like I normally would be able to sense life with my magic and such. Still have no magic. We will carry on. So they start making their way down what was probably a street at some point. Very well made, made street. No cobblestones, but just all made of stone, which is kind of nice. Darker color than normal, but what they, they're having to walk around, like I said, the fallen buildings and things that are all trashed. All the buildings appear to be made of stone. You know, the wood buildings specifically. There's a piece of wood in the rubble, but nothing major. And they travel for a good 15, 20 minutes making their way through this. This huge city. And as they're traveling, you know, they're not splitting up. They're staying close. But they are trying to all look in different directions see what's going on. And they climb up a bit of a, a rocky... Because the building's falling across the road. They've got to try to climb over some of the rubble. And as they get up, they look off to their... I'll say their left, but it was technically the east of where they were standing. And they see a large lake. Big enough, they can't see the other side of it. So it's a big lake. It be an ocean for all they know. It's not waves like an ocean. It's relatively smooth. And the water there is a, a greenish blue. It's, it's very much like the sky. Not exactly. So it doesn't look like it's all one thing. They're not in a globe of this. But they're shocked by what they see. They see what could, is the first real living thing they see, and it's not something you want to come across. They see a giant. Now, all of them have heard of giants. They know what giants are. They've never seen one. This giant is bigger than anything they've ever seen described. Luckily, they caught it unaware. She appears to be sleeping, laying on her side. They whisper to each other, and they're like, what do you know about giants? Like, I don't know anything about giants, really. Just what little bit you know. That thing is massive. It will kill us. We can't get close to it. Especially without any magic to defend ourselves. And they're like, okay. It's a greenish-colored giant. Green's usually, if I remember correctly, like in a water type giant. Like a, where would that be? A forest. Maybe they're a forest and they're discussing it. Where would they be from? Maybe we should try to move around. And then Moog is pulling on Fig's belt. Fig's like, not right now, Moog. And they're like, remember this. What if we try to go around? Well, we don't want to go across the water anyways. What if we go around and try to give it a great berth? They can see off in the distance the rubble is still going a good distance. Moog is pulling on Fig's belt. He's, Moog, what is it? He goes, her feeties are broken. He's pointing at the giant. And they all kind of turn and they look. And sure enough, right about where her shins are, it's broken. And a distance away, Two green feet just sitting. Well, mixed in with what was probably the bottom of some type of robe. Takes a moment to realize that this isn't a giant, it's a statue. The biggest statue they've ever seen. And from what they could tell, it's, it's broken, but it, it doesn't even look like it's stone. It's almost made out of some kind of metal. But it's a big green statue, and it's half laying on its side. It's a female, even though it looks kind of human. 
this weird spiky headband thing on, one arm above her, laying on her side, partially in the water. Anybody have any idea about what I'm talking about right now? I need a quick grape, if you'll bear with me a moment. If you've not figured out what I'm talking about, this is probably going to make a little more sense. If you've ever seen the Statue of Liberty, you'll have an idea about what I'm talking about. Imagine if you would. Oh, well, Teresa, thank you, thank you very much for coming by the stream. I'm glad you were here for it. And yes, Neon, you've hit exactly. The giant statue is the Statue of Liberty. And these our characters are standing in the ruins or rubble of what once would have been New York. And of course, as you know that on our world, there is no magic. Which is why nothing works here. Because in Merged World, if you remember, whatever the rules of your world are, are still in play. If a snowy blizzard land, let's say glacier, is right next to a desert, you'd think that it'd be all melty in the middle where the hot meets the cold, but it's not like that. It's a solid line where you've literally stepped from snow to cold to hot, cold to hot, and the temperature will change the moment you take a stop. second you step into that new world's land, the rules of that land is right there. And they happen to be in a world where there is no magic. Now, this world is very post-apocalyptic. We're going to say that, Okay. There are some still large parts of buildings, but it's mostly destroyed. I say that because it is important to realize that nowhere in this, because it looks like it happened a long time ago, even before the merge. That's important. Because understand that at no time will anyone ever find a gun. It's just not going to happen. I'm not bringing sci-fi mech stuff into my fantasy. I didn't. But this exists for a reason. We're going to go into that in a minute. But everything is destroyed. The sparking... They were coming up a subway. That's what I was describing. The sparking was an electrical... It was running off some type of generator thing, whatever. But they, were, they came up subway. The tapestries were posters on the walls of the subway. The metal stairs were the escalator. That wasn't working anymore. The smooth, lighter colors... Cement. That's why they're not seeing cobblestone and cement. The road well cared is one of our roads. It's a paved road. Still broken. But the world's completely trashed. The statues and things they see, a lot of those, busted up vehicles. That at this point are so rusted and gone, glass shattered out of them. Things you heard in the distance popping and such, yeah, very likely could have been a tire on a car popping or something falling off a building. This is a very decimated location. Would you potentially find an old pair of glasses that would be cool? Oh, you see, I thought there was a wild magic user up ahead. That's what I tried to do with them as well. I tried to lead it into that it was some type of magic user, or maybe they were catching up with his brother. But in reality, I wanted them to find this. And here's why. Because while they're standing there looking at the giant, they hear footsteps behind them. They turn around quickly. You're so mind-boggled by what they'd seen, they weren't paying attention as much as they normally would. And they spun around weapons at the ready and are shocked by what they see. At least 50 or 60 of them just standing there, a little scared, a little nervous, but also curious. 
There are about 50, maybe 55, gully dwarves crawling out of the rocks and from behind buildings. Normally, they would have never come out when they saw someone. But this group had a gully dwarf with them. That made them curious. They obviously don't hurt gully dwarves. Everybody hurts gully dwarves. No one likes gully dwarves. So gully dwarves, some of them came across this land. Gully dwarves, they don't have magic stuff. To them, it's just a walk. And they came across the ruins of a New York. So they started living here. Because who else would ever want to come here? Dragons, magical creatures, they're going to avoid this place like the plague. No dragons is stupid enough to fly into a dead magic zone. They get into that, they're going to get right back out again. Because technically, by most standards, a dragon's wings by itself wouldn't be strong enough to actually make a dragon fly. The wings plus magic are what lets that happen, depending on your view of fantasy. No one's going to live in a place like this. What better place for a group of people that normally live in filth and trash and ruins anyways, where they're not going to get hurt or abused or killed. In fact, since the merge, close to several hundred, if not thousand, gully dwarves are here. Almost as if they were pulled towards it, if you will. And for some reason, gully dwarves in the area just all kind of came this way. For no reason, no why. Leaving where they after the merge, they all just felt pulled to this direction. Almost like something was guiding them to a place where they could be safe. I mean, as safe as could be. It's, it's, you, know, you walk across and you can set off an explosion. There have been some gully deaths, but overall, pretty, pretty, pretty good place for them. Foodstuffs, scrounging, old gardens, things of that nature. They come across your odd can of beans. They realize there's food in cans. I'll tell you what, that, that was a big changing day for the uh, gully doors. Twinkies, because of course those don't ever go bad. Inside joke. But... They're here. Now, realizing those gully dwarves, our group very carefully puts their weapons away, not to spook them. They don't know all the things I just told you, but they're about to find out. A gully dwarf comes out. A little bit older than the others. Speaks up. Who are you? Why are you here? They have very broken English. They're not very bright. I talked about that earlier. And they say, we are just a group of travelers that have come across this place. And we're not quite sure where this place is. Go to if nods his head like that makes total sense. Yeah, not knowing where you are, that makes total sense. You travel with a gully. They point at Moog. Moog waves. Got a little pot on his head, remember? That's his little helm. He's got his little hammer tucked into his belt. They're looking very cautiously at Darsh. Darsh is the scariest one of the group. Darsh is always the scariest one of the group. But Mercy kind of steps forward and takes the lead. Mercy goes, he's our friend. He travels with us. Gullier, a little taken by this. They speak to each other. And they don't really have their own language, but they don't grudge all. They talk to them and they're like, you know hurt him? And Moog laughs, no, sir. This is Figgy. Figgy's my buddy. Figgy make me a warrior. Pulls his little hammer out and swings it. And they all, all the gully dwarfs step back for a second. It's a gully dwarf with a weapon. You don't see that. You a warrior? And Fig goes, 
And Fig, looking at them and looking at Moog, nods his head and says, Yes, he's a great warrior. He's traveled for us for many, many days. Fought many, many bad guys. And they're like, the Gullidors are seriously impressed. And they're like, you kill bad guys? Moog has to think about it for a second. He's like, I don't remember killing any bad guys. Usually Figgy just makes me hide in my pot. But he's like, well, I did. Sh-. And he's like, I did shoot the big thing at the big monster. Yes, I helped kill lots of bad guys. He doesn't remember. And they're like, oh, and they come up and they start patting him on the shoulder and shaking his hand and stuff. This is a gully hero. And Willow leans into Fig and goes, he's not really a warrior, man. And he goes, no, but they think he is. She looks at him oddly and then she realizes what he's doing. Fig views Moog like his own little boy. He's very protective of him. And his whole goal has been to keep him safe until he could find a safe place for Moog to live. A place where Moog would be safe. And looking around at all the gullies here, biggest collection of gully dwarves he's ever heard of, in a land like this, Sounds like the perfect spot for Moog. So playing them up as a big warrior, acclimating him to these people. Maybe a place for steam. Maybe he can come in here. Maybe get himself a wife. Make a bunch of little gullies. Whatever the case may be. But this is a place that Fig is thinking, this is the first place I've seen that would be a safe place for my boy to be. And Moog comes over and after he says something, he comes, Fig, they really like me. And he's like, yes, they do, don't they? He's like, they think, very big warrior. I am very big warrior. Didn't realize how good for warrior I am. He starts flexing and such. And Fig gets a little bit of a smile. And he goes, yes, you've helped protect us many times, Mook. Mook smiles and he goes, but you know what? All these people here, all these gully dwarves, they don't have any warriors like you. Mook looks over and he nods his head. He goes, that's true. He goes, because Mook knows. Mook wasn't a warrior. Figgy made him a warrior. He goes, yeah. It's true. Sadly, they don't have anybody to take care of them and to protect them. And Moog was like, that's very sad. Very sad. Everybody needs someone to protect. Like, Figgy protects Moog. Moog protects Figgy. He goes, yes, that's exactly right. Everybody needs someone to take care of them. But nobody gets to take care of them. If only there was someone who could teach them to be a big warrior like Moog. Moog goes, hmm. They need a Figgy. Figgy, you gonna stay? (laughs) It's like, no, I can't. I have to go and I have to take care of our other friends. He goes, ah, Mercy. And Darsh, he's real big. He's hard to get to places. He goes, yes, got to keep care of Darsh. We have to take our new friend Rafe home. Yes, Rafe lives very far away. Oh, they could really use a figgy. Got too bad. And he's like, well, Moog, maybe maybe you could be their figgy. Never thought of that. He's like, I could be figgy? Yes, you're a warrior. You could protect them. And you could teach them to be a warrior like you. Moog strokes the two or three hairs that are on his chin. He's like, I, you think I could? And he goes, I think you could. I think you are a great warrior that could really take care of these people. And then Moog nods his head and he's like, yeah. But at the same time, Moog realizes, but if I stay and look after them, I can't be with Figgy anymore. He goes, that's right. You'd have to stay here. But I could come back and visit. 
You would? You'd come back? You don't leave me forever? Yes. I promise I won't leave you forever. When we're done taking everyone home and dealing with the monsters, because that's what he was calling the bad guys, the drone. He just refers to everything as monsters. When we're done killing the monsters, I'll come back and help you. And Moo goes, I, but I help you fight the monsters. He's starting to hold his little hands like this. And he's like, he's like, yes, you'd be a great help. But what if the monsters were to come here? And Moo goes, oh, the gullies. Because yes, the gullies could be in danger. They would need a warrior to protect them. And Fig won't be here. That's right. Fig, I'm sorry, but I think I have to stay and look after the gullies. And Fig smiles and goes, I think that's a good idea too, Moog. I think that this would be a good place for you until I come back. And I promise you, my boy, I will come back. I'll come back and I'll, I'll see you again. He scratches his little ears and he goes, You want my shinies? Pulls his little pouch out and he just taps his hand and says, no, you keep your shinies, and when I come back, you can show me all the new shinies that you've added to your collection. I bet there's lots of shinies here. And Moog goes, oh, this place is very big. I bet there's lots of shinies. I can show them my shinies. You can show them your shinies, man. And then maybe you can teach them to collect shinies. Yeah, keep them shinies. And then, you know, there's a moment of saying goodbye and sadness and things of that nature. But the big part is that through the conversation, and, and, and the gentleman who played Fig uh, is also the gentleman who played Zarin. And Zarin is much more like who that gentleman really is in real life. But in Fig, he really did some of the best role-playing that um, the whole group had done. He did a very good job with Fig. Um, and he role-played that whole conversation. I'm paraphrasing, but he, he I played Moog, and he worked it out and convinced him that it was his idea to stay, and he was doing the best, and that he would come back. I was very, very impressed with the role-playing that day. But they spend a night there and keeps a little, uh, keeps a night with them, even though it's stinky and they try to feed them rat meat, but that's not good. And they, they do live on a lot of rats. That's, that is, a, but a place like New York, there's some big rats in the sewers there. Maybe even an alligator. <laughs> Maybe we'll see that in the future. But here in New Gullyville, which is what the gullies call New York, it's New Gullyville. Is, and they got that name here before they left because uh, they find a sign that says new and the rest of it's broken. So, so the city was new something. And they're like, New, Gully, new Gullyville? And that's, and that's what that's what Moog named it. And all the Gullies like, that's a good idea, New Gullyville. Yeah, this is, this is where we live. And he decides to stay and, and teach them to be warriors. So, after an evening of declining rat meat and getting out of there, the group decides to travel on. They say goodbye to their little friend who, for the first time, you know, they thought they'd lose Moog. Moog was almost like a, I wouldn't say he was almost like a sidekick, really, more than anything else. But uh, Fig, Fig had some manly tears in his eyes as he left. But he, uh, they let the little guy stay there to teach them to be warriors. And they travel on. And once they get out of the city proper, um, it almost is like the city is surrounded by a swamp. And it's a funky swamp. It's deep in places. It's a struggle to get through, and it takes them a while. Like, it takes them a good couple of days to get through all of this. But as they get near the end of the swamp, this almost like they're looking ahead, they see the swamp. Literally, where the swamp is almost like a solid line of grassy plains. And 
and they're like, oh, all right, maybe that's the end of the swamp. Good, let's go there. Maybe a new world. And they climb out of the swamp into the grassy plains, and immediately they, Willow cries out in happiness, because the second she left the swamp, her magic is returned. They are no longer in the dead magic area that they were. So New Gullyville, the largest dead magic zone in this world, is now a Gully Dwarf Kingdom, where the warrior Moog will be teaching them to fight. We'll see more about that later. But they then, at that point, decide it's time to carry on. And they travel for several days. Uh, well, actually, no. It's good. It's going to be, at, oh God, from Gullyville, it's going to be at least two and a half weeks. Or they're on foot. So it's about two and a half weeks on foot. And they're traveling very southish. They don't know where to go. Either they're spinning their amulet, and it says that direction. So that's where they're going to go. And they're back to the amulet again. Luckily, they get all their magic stuff back out, put all their stuff away. As they left New Gullyville, they were able to get a bit of a feeling of where they were. And Again, as I mentioned, the stars are much harder because the stars don't move. So they're having, everybody nautically especially has to learn to completely relearn navigation. But they have a little bit of it. Willow being a little bit more to that and has a rough idea of the direction they're in. And so as soon as they're like, well, we have to go this direction, but Rafe, your people are that direction. We're going to go southeast and you're welcome, sorry, southwest. You're welcome to come with us. But from everything we can tell, your kingdom is to the east. And Rafe was like, I would like, I would love to come with you, but I have to get back to my family. I mean, they're searching for me. They're looking for, I, and if I can get there, if my brother is out there serving this thing or helping or whatever, I have to find him. I got to finish what I started there. I can't let him hurt anybody else. Like, we understand that. So he takes off. He goes that direction. That was, as, that was as they're leaving Gullyville. Once they got out to the regular world, they could see the sky again. Because the sky becomes normal once they step out. That green swirly stuff is all gone. So Rafe is heading east. They're heading southwest. We jump back to the other group again real quick. What a change. After they left the Kender town, they proceeded to head, head north. Because that's the direction they were headed. There's their ambulance spinning. As they're moving... They're traveling just a couple of days before they see several riders up ahead as well coming in their direction. Now, very quickly, Shadow is able to tell those are not drow. They appear to be knights of some kind. Warriors. So they're very cautious. They armed, but they come up. And as they get closer, they hear Michael say, By the gods! Because, you know, that's what people say in D&D. D &D. The men come up, and Michael recognizes them. He says, Peter! Peter looks at the guy and he takes him in to look. Because you understand, Michael's very unkept at this point. They don't get a lot of haircuts when they run around. It's been a while. He's a little bit, he's back up to healthy now, but you know, he's not wearing his gear. And it's like, Michael, we thought you were dead. Michael hops off the horse. They hug each other. They say, hi, well, and manly hugs and fist bumps or whatever knights do. And Michael introduces them all. He says, these are knights of my order. I feared I'd never see any of them again. And they're knights of the Holy Crown, by the way. That's the, the name of them. They, they, Michael never really said it, but they're wearing a, basically like a, it's like a crown with almost like angelic wings coming off it. That's their symbol. And they got the little banner and so on. 
on their horses, that's their creed, Knights of the Holy Crown. And he's like, and they're like, we, we searched, we thought you were gone. Like, what, what are you doing out here now? He goes, we're on patrol. He's like, what do you mean patrol? He goes, Fort, and he gives the name of the fort. I apologize, I don't remember the name of the fort. He goes, Fort, I'll come up with name later, is just several days travel to the east. He's like, the entire fort came through? He goes, yes. Well, most of them. Your uncle is still in control. I am sad to regret that there's been no sign of your father. Goes, okay, yes, my father was gone anyways. He was at a different fort. I was with my uncle. He goes, he goes you, they're like, you must come back with us. Your uncle will be overjoyed to know that you're alive. We thought you're gone. We're your friends. And they introduce him, tell a little bit of the story. And they're like, okay, well, they can come too. And he's like, okay. And then Shadow's like, we, we can't. We've got to go this direction. We'd love to. Don't get me wrong, Michael. We'd love to come with you. But we have to continue. But we're going to be going this direction. Maybe you can catch up. He's like, okay. Okay. And he turns to Dandy and he goes, will you come with me? And Dandy says, I'd like to, but I got to find him. She gets that look in her eyes that she has a couple times once in a while when they see her sitting by herself, sharpening a wood or sharpening her blades, whittling, whatever. She has that look on, I have to find him. And he's like, I understand. I will go to my uncle. The resources of the knighthood, I'm sure that they'll make him available to help. I will seek him out. Maybe they know something of these drow. And even if they don't, if I can get men, even just one brigade, we can track them no problem. Get them down. He's like, all right, well, we're heading this direction. The amulet has been pointing the same direction for a while. So if we continue there, do your best to get to us. If not, if we, if we, whatever, we'll come back to you. They make some meetings and meet up. Michael, hating to say goodbye, feels that this is the best thing he can do to help at this point. If he can get a regiment of men to come and help, but they don't have to go slow anymore, you get 30 or 40 of his trained knights, and these people know how to fight, they could take out six drow pretty cake. So that's what they want to do. So Michael, bidding goodbye, giving Dandy a small kiss on the cheek. She blushes a little bit, and everybody's like, oh, really? Because they got to feel that the last few days. Nothing for sure. Michael says goodbye and rides off with the small group of knights back to the east. Danny feels a little sad that he's gone. She likes Michael. He's a good guy. But I've got to find him. She turns and they all turn and they continue heading north. And they travel for several days. No sign of Michael yet, but they expect it was a couple days. It can take some time. Uh, they're on horses. And they get to a valley. Now, when I say this, it's very important that you, that you get the mental picture of this valley. There is... Imagine that the land is just flat. And when you get to this valley, it's almost a perfect, gentle slope down. Perfectly rounded and smooth. Massive. Two to three football fields across every direction. Very large in size. But going down to the bottom, flattening out, and then coming back up top. Smooth hills on every side. But it's not super steep, a little steep. And they're like, well, go across this. Hey, Split, welcome back. And like, we're going to cross here. And they start to make their way down. They're only partway down the hill before they see another group of people coming from the north. Drawing their weapons, they move cautiously. These people are not on horseback. And they don't appear to be the drow. The other people are actually in the valley first, heading towards them. 
both groups moving cautiously. And it's Shadow's awesome eyesight that first recognizes their friends across the way from them. The two groups coming from the opposite ends of this valley from north and south. For the first time in many months, several months, the group arrived at the same point at the same time. Coincidence? I think not. But they arrive at the bottom of this, well, the, the edge of the valley. So, like, they're like, imagine if the valley's a perfect circle. They were kind of skirting one end of it. So, they're kind of on the bottom and the side. So, they're like on one third of it. That's important. Uh, did anyone make you drink the monstrosity? Yeah, I, I had a couple of the nasties the other day. <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, Split is asking, I did a, a stream the other day, and for every person, who, every new member, every $5 donation, I had to take a shot of Jaeger, and it was, it was not fun. That was a membership drive. The friends are together, and they're very, very excited. Sounds like a crater, yes, but perfectly rounded. Perfectly smooth. Almost so much so that it doesn't seem natural. Grassy, though. No tall grass but very grassy. No rocks. Very smooth. But it's not like a hole in the middle like a, a, like a rock hit. But it, it almost feels like something gently like took a spoon and ice cream whoop, and smoothed the scoop out. That would be a good example of it. Straight down could also accomplish that. That is correct. I'm just giving you the description as it seems. The friends are excited to see each other. Hugs, there's some tears. <laughs> Darsh holding dandy. They tell their stories. The one group tells the story of Moog, what happened with him. Dandy and them talk about Michael. They tell the adventures. They say, here's the uh, excitement, or here's the artifacts that we have. And between the two of them, they have several groups. Uh, no split. No one did make me drink the vodka, orange juice, and whiskey combo. We didn't hit our, our goal of, of 20 members for that, or even a member at that point. <laughs> but we have had a member since then, but that wasn't for the stream. I'm not, I didn't have to drink the nastiness. Um... So they're there hanging out in the valley, and they're, they're just recouping. You know, telling them, they're like, hey, it's a perfect spot. Let's just make camp here. It's only early afternoon. But we'll catch up and figure out what we have to do next. Because their amulets had paid bring them right towards each other. Even though none of them have any artifacts out, oddly enough. So they make camp. They tell stories. Sadness, people crying about the Kender, people crying about the lost uh, miners, and uh, what happened in the Drow Kingdom, and all that kind of stuff. So there's been a, a whole, whole stuff. Now, down in the Drow Kingdom, Mercy's very descriptive of the Drow that they made a deal with, and the way he dressed and the way he acted, and they very quickly realize it's not the same Drow that the other group is chasing. So if anybody thought that was the case, it was not. It was wrapping very far apart at the exact same time. I had to make that clear to the party as well because they were starting to think it was the same guy. And it is not. The guy down underground, that's a separate thing. We'll see him later. But the drow they're chasing is not. So, they tell, they say where they're going. Everybody's sad about the stuff. They make camp, they rest. Uh, Mercy and Artemis, who are almost best of friends, are really, really you know, hugging each other and crying and all this stuff. And, uh, Darsh and Dandy and Darsh listens very intently to Dandy's stories, even though most of it's boring, and she keeps going off on tangents. I'm very Kender-like in that regard. <laughs> but they tell the tale, and they go on. They rest, and then the next morning, they're up early. The sky's clear. Looks like it's going to be a nice day. It's very mild in weather where they're at right now. They get up, and they're making a breakfast and just chatting and talking and such. 
and it is who was it? Shadow that knows it first. Shadow's always very observant. But Shadow sees something in the distance off to the west. Now, off to the west, in the very, very far distance, before they got down the valley, they could see the very edge of a mountain range. But what they're seeing is something in the sky. It looks like something floating in the sky. And as they watch it, they can see that whatever it is is coming closer. They start gathering up their stuff. It doesn't seem to be moving real fast, and it's not fighting the way you'd expect a dragon or anything like that. It just seems to be coming very slowly forward. And they gather all up stuff, and they're like, okay, we don't have enough horses for everybody, so some people will ride horses, some people will walk, but we'll figure out where, where we need to go next, and they're trying to figure it out, and they're spinning the amulets, and the amulets aren't giving off any light. And they're like, this is odd. Something is messing with the amulets. It brought us both to this valley, but once we got here, it stopped working. Maybe we'll have to move out of the valley and see. The shape in the sky still getting ever closer, and they realize that the thing in the sky is large. Just based on its movement, it would have to be. As they watch it get closer, they then start to feel vibration. Not everybody. Fig notices that first. Fig feels the vibration in the ground, being gnomish and dwarfish in his training. He can feel things like that. He's more sensitive to that. And they feel the ground trembling a little bit. And then they hear a noise, almost like faint thunder coming from the same direction as that thing in the sky. Is the sky making it? How would the sky be making the ground shake? It doesn't make sense. They decide they are going to have to leave the valley because there's no cover here. There are no trees. Just nice ankle, left, ankle to shin high grass, almost uniform. No rocks to hide behind. And as they begin to... Okay, we're going to start... Maybe let's go the opposite direction of the thing coming towards us. We'll go east a little bit. Maybe we can go find Michael. That might be a good idea. Now that we've got the group together, maybe they can help us track down the draft. As they speak up, the thing in the sky begins to move faster towards them. It catches their attention. You know, like at the speed that it's going, it's going to catch up. So they stop. And like, okay, let's... And they're staring at it, and finally Shadow's able to make out what it is. It's a castle. Flying in their direction. Almost like it was ripped out of the earth. Rock just hanging from the bottom of it. And it is flying towards them. And as it's getting closer to the valley, it looks like it's slowing down. The party is concerned. Not just anybody can make a flying castle. We must flee, says Mercy. I'm not one to run from a fight, but... Who knows what's in that? Something of that power is beyond our t what we have the ability to fight. Let's see if we can get to cover. Maybe get to Michael. Your friend Michael. Maybe uh, his knights might be able to help us. No, sadly, this is where you must make your stand. Comes a voice. Everyone turns, drawing their weapons quickly. Because who the hell just snuck up on these guys? And he stands there with a very plain look on his face. Almost no emotion. The light breeze blowing his gray robes around. And Zoltan says, This is where you must make your stand. The darkness comes, 
and it has arrived. And the citadel flies slowly closer, almost right above them, and then just comes to a stop. The ground still shaking. As looking ahead, they can see the army marching beneath it. And that's what we're going to call it for today. Yeah, that works. So, if anybody has any questions about this episode, feel free to throw them in the chat. If you're watching this later, feel free to throw them down in the comments as well, and I'll do my best to answer as quickly as I can. Uh, you can also go to onlyraven.com, and there's a place to submit feedback or questions down on the bottom of that page. I've mentioned a few times, but if you were here, not here earlier, that's something you can do. Uh, if you enjoyed the stream, please be sure to click like. If you haven't already, please hit subscribe. Um, also, if you'd like to consider an ODG membership, click the join button. It'll show you all the different perks that comes along with this. Uh, membership gives a lot of cool things. You may see people in chat with different colored fonts and using some cool emojis and cool little symbols next to their names. Uh, that is all things that come with uh, the Only Draven Gaming uh, membership. Um, but uh, you can also, if you'd like to join our Discord, if you'd like to talk to us about Merge World or anything in there, uh, we got a lot of stuff there. There's also a Merge World subreddit. Go do a search for that on Reddit. You can come chat with us there as well. We're posting some pictures and stuff up on there this week, prepping for next, or not this Sunday, but the Sunday after will be the, I guess you'd say, season finale of the Merge World story. We have our big ending of this, and I don't think it'll take but probably half of the stream. We'll probably jump right into the next story as well. So I'm excited to do that. Um, and we will continue on. But I hope everybody enjoyed the story. I appreciate everybody who came by and hung out today. Uh, what's that? Teresa says, great story. I'll be back for more. James gave me the heart pig. <laughs> I love the heart pig. Um, <laughs> but I really enjoy telling the story. I really appreciate everybody uh, who comes out and hangs out and watches with me. Um, if you wouldn't mind, something that would help out, if you know anybody who might like the Merge World story. Uh, it is available on iTunes as an audio podcast as well. This episode will be up by tomorrow. Um, just do a search for Merged Worlds, all one word, on iTunes. It's a free audio podcast. Uh, if you have anybody who might like the audio podcast, or you think might like these streams, uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing them on your socials or passing them off to people, I'm definitely trying to get the word out. Um, hopefully people will enjoy this, this story as much as I do. Um, so I appreciate anything you can do to throw out there. Uh, it, would, it would be great. Uh, James says, me too. That's my favorite so far. And the, <laughs> and the fire moon. Yes, the fire moon symbol, 100% is a Rafe symbol. So I really wanted to get one for Merge World. Like I said, I've got a tattoo of that that's not that good. I'm going to get it redone eventually. Um, but I've had that tattoo, oh God, six years. I think six, seven years. My wife got that for me my first birthday after we were together. So I'm proud of it. But yes, um... I really enjoyed telling the story. This one went a little bit longer than normal, so I'm going to go ahead and call it a quiz because I don't want it to be too long. I try to keep it close to two hours. We went a little bit further, but I really wanted to get to that point before I turned it off. Again, if you liked the video, uh, let me see. Did you post them anywhere other than iTunes? Right now, it's just iTunes. Um, my website is through Squarespace, and Squarespace specifically has their stuff set up to work well with iTunes. So to get it to go to the other formats, I actually would ha have to host them somewhere else. And I'm in the middle of figuring out how to do that. But I am going to move them to the other podcast sites, especially the, the Google Play Store. I'm going to get them on that, or Google Play, whatever the Android equivalent is. I'm going to get them on that. It's just taking a little bit more work uh, because I don't know how to do that, and I have some people helping me. So that will happen eventually. It's just on iTunes right now. But if you wanted to listen to them not on iTunes, I forgot about this. If you go to OnlyDraven.com and click Merge Worlds, the audio podcasts are hosted there. You can actually listen to them directly through my website. 
So if you were you want to pull up my website and click on that, you could play it through your phone or on your computer or wherever directly through my site. If you don't use iTunes, that's perfectly fine. Well, I keep forgetting to mention that they're there. I host them there, so they're available there and on iTunes. So yes, OnlyDraven.com is a source to be able to hear the audio podcast if you don't have iTunes. If you'd like to hear it as an audio method. All right. Well, I'm going to call it a day. Again, thank you everyone who's come by and hung out today. Everybody's been so awesome in the chat. Uh, thank you very much for the donation today. Always thank you to my members. Special thanks as well to my moderators. Always appreciate you guys help me take care of everything. And I look forward to seeing you all in about two weeks for a little bit more Merge World, maybe epic ending. All right. Thank you all very much. You all have yourselves a wonderful day. We'll see you soon.